All right, I'm fired up early on a Monday here, Pacific time. We're talking football the entire podcast. Scott Hansen, NFL Red Zone, his career and the start of the season, and then a deep dive of the first weekend and bigger playoff expansion stuff by author and my former ESPN co-host, Brad Edwards. Life advice. Let's go. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at lq.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Man, what a weekend. Uh, this this felt awesome. It felt great to see everybody in these stadiums. It felt normal. Um, it's amazing how much you can miss certain things. I went to my first game since 2019. I think since the title game, yeah, right. Because I don't, th- yeah, I didn't go to a game last year. So for me personally, going to LSU at UCLA and and just feeling it again. Uh, there's there's nothing like it. There's nothing like college ball. And let's talk about it. All right, I'm going to run through this because we've got one week. I could do a very simple and predictable, not original, hey, overreaction Monday, which is still what I'm going to sort of do a little bit there, but that's just what it is. We can't help ourselves. We're excited. I mean, you could make it really negative, but honestly, it's about excitement, and it's the fact that we have only first impressions. I've always said this about college football. We are the least informed on this sport of all the major sports that we talk about. Um, At least with the NFL, you have an idea, even if a coach can make a huge difference. Baseball, hey, where are your pitchers? And basketball, how many great players do you have on your team college football is entirely different and that's why you know Stanford Steve and I've always made that joke we used to make all those years working together preseason rankings would come out and be like oh that team's top 10 what happened quarterbacks back we like the coach and they won their bowl game all right done and done and then we're either right about it or completely surprised you're like yeah you guys forget about the seven other people that are missing from that team so we are the least educated on this and that means the first week is first impressions and if we relate it to just normal interactions with people think if you spent three hours with somebody and they acted terrible, then it'd be really hard to convince you that they were anything different than that. And that's what happens in college football is we have these not only high expectations, forget people, high expectations of a team. We spend three hours with them on a Saturday and it doesn't go as well as we thought it was going to go. That's a very bad first impression. The difference here is you're going to get 12 impressions and the guy that you may have hung out with for three hours that you didn't like all that much, you're probably not going to hang out with them 11 more times. So that's where we can make the mistake. First impression, biggest game of the weekend, Georgia and Clemson. We know it was about the defense. 15 sacks now for Georgia going back to the Cincinnati game. They're loaded with guys. I mean, Jordan Davis, number 99, 6'6", 360, moves like he does. There's all sorts of guys flying around for them. But it's the same thing with Clemson. Actually, these teams really mirrored each other. And it's a pick six that decides this, 10-3 score. It's the, I think, first scoreless half for Clemson going back to 2008. Uh, but I don't, I, I mean, it still felt like a coin toss game. So it's huge for Georgia because of all of the, hey, can Kirby win against equal talent teams? Well, he did. He did. Um, I didn't love the quarterback situation with JT Daniels. 
Well, in a weird way, I was probably a little bit more concerned with JT Daniels um, because he had a better time of it uh, than Uyunga Lale. You know, I don't, I mean, the, the, the hits he took, some were on him. I think Herbstreit was really good on the call. Uh, he said he stared down the receiver on the pick six too much. I thought it was a great play by the corner as well, on top of everything else. Dabo said that it was the receiver that ran the wrong route. The second sack, I thought DJ Leg was going to get broken in half. The fourth sack after the pick, um, where they had great field position, he held onto the ball too long. And then on the fifth sack, I thought he was going to get you know, knocked out of the game. So I'm not going to tell you, hey, it's it was awesome for a Clemson quarterback I have higher hopes for than probably the Georgia quarterback. But this was a coin toss result, loaded defenses, weak schedules the rest of the way. And as we'll ask Brad Edwards, it's already kind of started up. Well, what, what will this mean for the playoff? Hey, look, August was last week. August was last week. And we're going to be talking about this game in November, and we could feel differently about these teams. Now, I don't like whenever we look at the remaining schedule and say, yeah, they're favored against the rest of the teams by this average score. And even though we haven't had the surprises the last few years that I tell you that usually always happen, but it hasn't happened in recent memory, uh, I'm not going to now say that this is the tiebreaker and Georgia doesn't have to win the SEC title game. It, I, I, you can present it. It might be a possibility. But to present it is fact. Again, when August was last week, I'm just not going to do that. What feels like, you know, a sea of maybes and uncertainties and then certainties. Bama, again, is the certainty. Now, if you go back to Miami last year, and I used to bring this up, they beat Louisville, who was 18th in the country last year. They were 3-0. and They went to that Clemson game, a lot of hype. They scored 17 points. It was 42-17. I'm telling you, it wasn't even that. There was like one real touchdown in that entire game. Uh, they played North Carolina at the end of the season, the regular season. They lost 62-26. They did win their bowl game against Oklahoma State. But the point is, is that it felt like whenever Miami stepped up talent, it wasn't even close, and that's what we had with Alabama. Now, if you looked at Bryce Young, who was one of the top recruits at the position coming into Bama last year, and he did get some action because Bama was beating so many teams last season, he's more talented than Mac Jones. But whenever I used to get Saban, whether it was in studio or on the phone, we used to talk to him once a year back on the radio show, uh, I remember the Sims-Coker quarterback debate, and Sims won it, and then Coker wins it the next year, and then he ended up winning a title. Sims uh, wasn't very good in his playoff game against Ohio State. Because Bama could have won that game, too. I, I asked him, I go, what is it when it's close? He goes, command of the locker room, respect the other guys. And Mac had it, and I don't think Bryce did as a younger guy, which isn't totally unexplainable. But Bryce is the more talented QB, and then we saw that. And turnover at the receiver position, it doesn't matter. Mechie's there. Uh, Williams, Latou, the tight end, who hadn't had any catches, two, two touchdowns right out of the gate. And then Evan Neal, that tight end, or excuse me, Evan Neal, their tackle, who's 6'7", 350. And if you saw that box jump video that you've been seeing all offseason, when I was at the LSU game, I was talking to another media member, and he was like, Neal looks like a kind of guy who shouldn't even be allowed to play college football. So Bama, not a headline here, feels like a certainty. Miami, the letdown continues, carried over for the hype going into these bigger games. Speaking of certainties, we know the certainty is always there with Ohio State's talent, but we got to bring them up as a top team here because C.J. Stroud spent the first half on social media being like, oh, what's up with this guy? And you're like, okay, look, not every single top recruit at the position at one of the premier programs is going to look like Tom Brady for the entire first half of his career. All right, it's not going to happen. In the second half, I think Stroud, the five completions that he had averaged like 50 yards per completion. Okay, so they figured it out. If there's a snapshot of each team that I always think about where I go, okay, what's the blink test of this football team? When I think of Ohio State, I think of the slot receiver lining up, getting the post, getting inside, no safety help, and that that throw is going to be there multiple times every time. 
It happened with other quarterbacks. It's happened with Ryan Day. And it happened in this game as well. Like, you just aren't going to hold up. If I took a snapshot of the old Oregon Chip Kelly games, it'd be like handoff, handoff, bubble. We're going to throw it out. Eventually, the tight end is going to run wide open down the seam for a touchdown for 40 yards because you're not going to stay disciplined enough that entire time. So against Minnesota, which is a better football team, even though you know Minnesota looked at like in the beginning, they didn't have a chance. Like, look, sometimes these games are going to play out a little differently. So the first impression of them for Stroud ended up being entirely different in that second half. So I don't really think you have anything to worry about with that game. Uh, speaking of some of that snapshot stuff, Oklahoma. Now, we know that the defense is supposed to be better. That did not seem to be the case against Tulane. I, I'd like Tulane's quarterback, Pratt. I would also place him as the favorite of the only quarterback. If we had a bet, which quarterback would get beaten up by a defensive lineman for talking shit in a football game? I'd put Pratt as the favorite. Might not even be available on the board. We know that, hey, with this coordinator, another year with him at Oklahoma, hey, there's more talent, there's more depth up front. You know, we love this offseason stuff with football when it's the defense. It's like, we're going to make things more simple. Oh, we're going to be more complicated. We're going to disguise more. No, we're going to make it easier for these guys. We're going to be aggressive. No, we're going to play less of zone. We're going to play, play straight man. No, we're going to mix the coverage and we're going to do all all these different things. All right, fine. They gave up, what, 35 points to Tulane, and Tulane actually had a chance in this thing. That part seems scary. But on offense, Oklahoma, man, every time I watch him, I'm like, who's 11? Wait, who's four? Oh, this guy's a five-star? Who's Darby? All right, Mims. That, you know, like all these guys running around all over the place. But also gets back to Spencer Rattler, who I do think has the most arm talent of any quarterback in the country. Rattler is as good as anyone that I've seen. And, you know, again, we got a lot more to watch this season of putting what he needs to as far as velocity or taking it off. Like he's that good. The touch, the feel and all those things. Now, as I pointed out before, and this has even happened, I think sometimes with fields and days offense last season at Ohio state, but it certainly happened to other guys as well. Um, and you know, the LSU offense, under Joe Brady was explained to me years ago, kind of like, all right, here's your one, here's your two on this side of the field, and then three's your guarantee. All right, so first, second, we don't make you scan the whole field and then know that three, the way we set things up, three's your guarantee. But three isn't always your guarantee. And so then that actually takes you out of the comfort zone of the scheme where you're thinking, oh, wait, I actually have to make some reads here. And I'm not saying no one's making any reads in college football, but I think that there's so much hand-holding at the quarterback position now because the offenses are advanced that even somebody like Rattler, who some people have as the number one quarterback coming out, I don't think that'll end up happening once the draft actually happens, you know, less than a year from now. Um, but Rattler, it's so easy for him sometimes. I see him getting really loose. Now, the second pick was a great pick. The third one that should have been the third one was an awful throw, and it was an even worse uh, pass interference call on that one. It's probably more offensive pass interference. And sometimes I wonder with some of these predetermined reads and throws, hey man, this is the rule zone, this is the read here, it'll be like, oh, I didn't even look at that guy. It's like, are you looking at safeties every now and then? Or are you so locked into these are the rules based on the defensive concept you're facing that you don't actually look at some of the stuff or a, a safety shading over to you? I, I do wonder about that. And I think it happens a lot. I don't know if Oklahoma's defense is going to be better. I know that's not what you wanted against Tulane. But again, some of the top playoff contenders, we all seem to want them to win 50 to nothing where you don't take them seriously. Let's look at another couple teams that were hoping to be playoff contenders, um, but we also know off the Ohio State, not dominance against Minnesota, but dominance on the roster. We're like, okay, what do we make of Penn State and Wisconsin? So number 19 beats number 12 Wisconsin at Wisconsin. I think both teams are good. I don't think they're going to be great. Uh, Jahan Dotson had five catches for 102 yards. It could have been way worse. That guy got free all day long, and he got free deep. And it really is shocking with Jim Leonard's defense in Wisconsin that the safeties could keep making that mistake. In a weird way, I'm kind of surprised it doesn't happen more often just in the game of football, which tells you how good these guys are in preparation. Uh, yet with Penn State here, they didn't really burn Wisconsin enough with it, except for 
you know, one huge play. Clifford on Penn State's side, it looks shaky all, all game. My expectations are lower for Clifford at Penn State than they are for Mertz, quarterback of Wisconsin. Uh, but then there's Mertz, who was, we had Booger on last week. It was like, you know, he had that huge game against Illinois. He's a big-time recruit for Wisconsin to get in there at that position, like a really big-time deal for them. And as I watched that game close, where he had two picks to end it, the second one wasn't as bad as the first one. But the first one, I'm like sitting there going, all right, do you trust that Mertz is going to make the right read? And right now, I don't. I don't trust that he's going to make the right read. And for somebody that's supposed to be a strength, where I have higher hopes for him than Penn State's quarterback position, I think when you looked at both of those teams, there's guys you like all over the field. Uh, I really like Penn State's toughness. It was a great win on the road. But I, my first impression, which could be wrong here, is that both quarterbacks feel more limiting, which seems, you know, it's, aggressive, it's an aggressive take this soon. But that's what I saw for three-plus hours. Florida State. Are they better? They have to be better. They're down 38-20. They hang in there. Jordan Travis, quarterback, in a weird way, they got back in this game running the football because Notre Dame stayed with a three-down lineman um, formation. And then Florida State's like, if this is what you're giving us, we're just going to keep taking it. They kept running the football down. But Mackenzie Milton, if you remember him at UCF, two top 10 Heisman finishes, hadn't played any games since November of 2018. He gets back in. It was the story of this game. Starts, I think, five for five. The numbers actually could have been a little bit better than that. And they they tie this game up and send it to an overtime. Florida State misses the kick at home. So Notre Dame's probably going to be pretty good. No one's going to care. Florida State might be better. It's kind of one of those momentum losses when you've been down as Florida State, but you have the expectations that you should have when you're in Tallahassee. But I'm not sure. And again, Notre Dame, no one's going to care because of the playoff losses. Iowa State, 16-10 against Northern Iowa. Um, and that was plus two in the turnover column against a quarterback for Northern Iowa who hadn't played in a couple years um, versus Iowa, who now has won seven straight Big Ten games. The average margin of victory here in this one's like 20-plus points. They had two pick sixes against Penix, who can get a little loose with the football for an Indiana team that still should probably be pretty good. But next week's Iowa-Iowa State game is going to mean a ton, and going into it, it feels like Iowa is clearly the better team, but Iowa State's better in the rankings, higher expectations. I was at LSU at UCLA. I will admit I thought the game was going to be good, and I thought LSU would wear them down with their size, their depth. That was not the case whatsoever. Looking up at the scoreboard, you're in the third quarter. LSU has two rushing yards. The final totals, you Silly on the ground, 210 to LSU's 49 yards. Uh, that was a great atmosphere. It was a big win. You guys know me as much as I like LSU. I was really happy for Chip to get this kind of win because I thought he was starting to turn it around a little bit. But it's tough to look at their record last year and say, hey, you know what? UCLA is actually really good. You guys are sleeping on them. But they handled it up front. I don't know if this LSU offensive line is going to be as good as the recruiting would have told you the last couple of seasons. I thought Mac Johnson, at quarterback last year, kind of just playing with freedom. Hey, we don't have a good record. The season's at a loss. I thought he played more tense. I thought he held on to the football forever. I don't know if there's more issues of trying to figure out some balance in formations of what LSU is going to run. I, I felt like there was some real disconnects there. It was still a competitive game until it wasn't, and they really didn't have any answer for a lot of the stuff that Chip and UCLA was doing against them. So that is a great win for UCLA. It's a great win for Chip to kind of remind people that he can coach again because there's not anybody that actually works in the sport that really does it, that doesn't think that guy can't coach. And then, of course, all the LSU questions pop up again, which what I still think is a pretty talented team, but a team I don't think anybody's ever picked better than to come third in their own division. So we'll see what it means. If LSU falls apart and UCLA has a couple tough losses, we'll look back and say, oh, maybe that win wasn't that big of a deal. I still feel like it was, so I'm not going to shoot it down that way. But speaking of the Pac-12, have a weekend division. 
Oregon State loses to Purdue. Washington loses to Montana. They face each other 19 times. The last time Montana won was in 1920. It's the first FCS win against a ranked team in five years. Nevada beat Cal. That's not terrible. Utah State um, beats Washington State. BYU lost to Arizona. Um, Oregon had a tough one. We'll, we'll see what happens against Ohio State. But right now, the Pac-12's hopes are on UCLA and USC. Small note to UCLA. The tweets coming out of that program after that win, and it's a big win. <laughs> but man, like if you're if you're the athletic director and you're about to send a tweet about your team's win, and you go, "Hey, would Danny Cannell send this?" He would. All right, maybe I shouldn't do it because they're doing get the gap videos. They edited the video where the UCLA fan told uh, Coach O he's going to get his ass kicked, and then Coach O went back to him and was like, "Oh, I'll bring your sissy blue shirt." Now they're making sissy blue shirts. So uh, I imagine younger people are like, no, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to never have any wins and then have one win and actually go in a national championship. Um, I get it. I get it. And I know people are going to say, oh, you just care that, that way because of LSU. No, I don't. No, no. I just think it was um, I think it was weird. There's a lot of noise, a lot of noise. And I would probably be way more annoyed if it weren't for Chip Kelly. So there you go. All right. A lot of maybes, very few certainties after one full week of college football. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options, to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Scott Hansen, the host of Red Zone, everybody's favorite show. Um, this is cool, man, because I remember having you on in the very beginning. Van Pelt and I would be like, hey, are you watching this? Do you realize this thing exists? I'd be like, yeah, I do. I do realize. I knew it was bad when I'd be traveling back from college football, and I would tape the seven-hour show and then try to watch it knowing I was getting back from some southern city late on a sunday so that was always weird and then i would try to turn the phone off so that i wouldn't know yeah. what happened so it still felt live and then eventually sometimes you're like all right i'm gonna fast forward through here because i always felt like there was some there should have been some four o'clock eastern mercy rule when it was jacksonville that you were going to on first down at their own 15 that it was like maybe maybe i can fast forward through some of this and still have a good idea what happened in week six yeah the late window can be a, a little slim at, at some times. And, you know, if we start there, that's a good that's a good place because I get hit up by fans all the time thinking that I stack the games personally from the early window to the late window, right? Right. And so when it's a nine-two split, they're like, Hanson, why aren't you move some of those games? And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, it doesn't work that way. Second of all, it turns out the NFL, you know, knows how to make money. And, and that is, and you know this, but for the audience that doesn't, might not know this, they want to create us sometimes in the late window, a pseudo national game. 
And that's why you're going to see maybe a two-game window or let's say a three-game late window where one of the games will be Arizona and, and Seattle, uh, which this year is a good game. But, but like uh, maybe more regional, Jacksonville, Tennessee, something like that. And then the third game is Cowboys-Giants. And that's where it's being spread out to most of the most of the country. So now the early window is the early window is obviously where it's at. And as we have kind of either dubbed or stolen the name, depending on who you talk to, the witching hour for the end of the third quarter, all the way through the fourth quarter of the early window. That's really where the that's where the action's at. That's the pressure point of the show. Yeah. Scholars have argued the origin of the witching hour, but no one. Do you have a 100 percent sure? Do you have a take on it? Um, I don't. I mean, it's almost like one thing where if, if something is invented by someone, I think the inventors are always forgotten, and the promoters are the ones that are remembered. So if if my buddies, a part of my take, are tweeting out the witching hour all the time, then it just becomes that it's their thing. When I feel pretty certain, knowing that that one of the two are not sitting around one day just saying, "Hey, I'm going to call this window the witching hour," but the fact that they have the following they have that it then turns into kind of their deal, which is why I always think it's a little funny and I, I don't care if they get pissed off or not, but there'll be certain things that Van Pelt and I had done 10 years ago yeah. and they'll be like one, you know, look, it's not even the same thing, but they'll do like a thing. And then I'll circle back on something I did with Van Pelt. And then they're like, Hey, you're stealing it from part of my oh, take. And you're like, actually, <laughs> that's actually, ugly when that happened. Right. right yeah. yeah. You don't want to have to parse through and go, okay, let me show you a recording from this time where we did the Boston accents. No one wants to do that. Or we, yeah, or we did or we did life advice or whatever else so yeah Man. uh all right so here's here's something i thought was really interesting because the nfc east over the years we always kind of knew what to expect it'd be new england and then a bunch of teams firing their coaches every two years and now even when new england feeling like they're better with mac jones and i think the mac jones decision has to be not only about mac jones but also about cam struggles uh cam and camp to where he was with mac jones and then also his availability with not being vaccinated which is a factor in in roster decisions you know i mean that's the grown-up world that these guys are in we now have a a, a group uh, of four quarterbacks here where they're all really young and josh allen feels like he has the chance to be running the division here now for a long time which is a bit of an assumption in assuming no one else is going to be good enough but the yeah. bills are better possession a better position now at quarterback um than any of the other three teams Youngest quarterback division, starting quarterback division, I believe in modern NFL history. Like I think in the Super Bowl era, I mean, the, the elder statesman in the division as a starting quarterback is 25 year old Josh Allen. So uh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to watch. Um, I think, look at Belichick, we all know, doesn't do anything unless he thinks it's going to win football games. So the Mac Jones decision, it's not like, well, he's the future. Let's let have the future start now. He's he legitimately thinks, I believe, that week one, they have the best chance to win. The cutting cam part, of course, is the interesting to the uh, interesting aspect of that. And I'm not so sure it had to do with vax status or availability. I mean, maybe availability, but but not necessarily vax status. We saw the sound bite that Belichick gave about. Hey, you guys, and you know, Belichick was asked straight up, did his vaccination status or or the COVID situation have anything to do with releasing Cam? And he goes, no. And he paused. And then they were moving on to the next question. 
And Belichick interrupted the, the you know, Stacey James or whoever it was, PR person that was running the, the Zoom and, and then gave a, a more elaborate answer saying, by the way, you guys talking to the media, you guys have the numbers. You might want to look up how many coaches, players and staff have been infected that were vaccinated. You might you might not want to lose sight of that. Now, that's a paraphrase of what he said. So Belichick was almost giving us a vax take, I think, on on that, maybe a veiled vax take uh, that, that doesn't uh, you know, necessarily mesh with much of the public's vax take uh, and, and its, its ability to squash COVID. But I think, I, I think he definitely thinks that Matt Jones is the, is the way to go here. The releasing of Cam is just a, it's a curious, it's got to be a locker room dynamic. Or, or Belichick went to him and said, hey, I'm naming Mac number one. Do you want to be released? Because if you think you can go catch on and be a starter somewhere else by the end of the year, it's, it's not happening here short of an injury to Mac. And maybe Cam said, coach, I appreciate it. That's respect for a former MVP and, and that type of stuff. That, that's an interesting one. I will say this, though, with the way Mac Jones has uh, flashed a bit in the preseason, and Belichick uh, anointing him, the Patriots might not be as far back as people think. Like, don't necessarily pencil in Buffalo as the division champ. I would probably still predict them, but I don't think it's going to be, oh, it's a fait accompli based upon last year. Yeah, I, I would say the, the best part of the Cam Newton story in New England is that everybody really liked him in that, you know, the locker room thing was always, I, I think the guys look at him it almost like legendary status, you know, it's mm. kind of, it's, it's not quite Mike Vick, but you could tell mm. like when Vick got mm. to a team, it was these guys that were just in awe of him. And I think Cam had a little of that too. Uh, but I also feel like Belichick's answer and just me, you know, paying a lot of attention to it over the years and being from the area. I think if the question were phrased differently, then he would have told the media they were wrong in a different way. Um, I think what he was doing was he was saying, hey, if you guys are implying this is only because of vaccination, now I'm going to tell you why the vaccination numbers uh, may not back up your position. Whereas if it were presented okay. as, hey, how much better was Mac on the field than Cam, then yeah. Bill may have very likely said, hey, him not being available for a week really hurt him. So I, I, you know, I feel like he's, he's so anti-media that it'd be one of those okay. deals where however you framed it, he was going to make you, it's, it's almost like, it's a little Popovich-ish where Popovich, you know, yeah. very small bursts because he thinks he's doing this funny routine will just be like, no matter what you say, he's just going to say that you're wrong, which I look, one of my fav favorite experiences ever, a guy named Doug Melvin, he was general manager of the Texas Rangers. This is going back 20 years. He got on with the Red Sox as a consultant in the front office. I was working for the AA Red Sox in Trenton. And it's 2002. And of course, anytime any of those front office guys came through, I was trying to pick their brains. I, that's what I actually wanted to do. I wanted to work in a front office. And so I went to Doug Melvin. I'm like, hey, I'm Ryan. And, and he just like, hey, you know, like these guys are getting harassed all the time for jobs. So it's not like they haven't already built up this, this defense mechanism. But I said, you know, is it really about developing pitching and just stockpiling as much depth as you can in the six minor league, you know, levels that you have here and all the summer and all? This is just back then. It was so deep how many different programs you have. Like, is it just stockpiling arms, big numbers, velocity, just trying over how many arms can we get because somebody get hurt and all this different stuff? And he was like, well, keep track of runs. And it was like, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what I said. I was just going to be wrong. Yeah. And, I, and I remember even at 26, I was like, okay. That was a lesson. That was a lesson there. All right. Uh, let's Actually, I would like to, if I can follow with this, sure. because you mentioned two guys that, that uh, one I've dealt with and one I watch from afar. Belichick, I've dealt with him 
I used to be a roving reporter with NFL Network before I was the host of NFL Red Zone. Now, this is going back 13 years, but I was living at the Patriots, right? This was, you know, this was the 16 and 0 season. This was, the, you know, obviously they had a run of a decade and a half of excellence. So I dealt with Belichick all the time. I spent a Christmas with Bill Belichick one time, if you want to hear that story. But um, I, Popovich, the other one, Right. And they're both very similar in a way that I think they feel they loathe the media so much that they feel like you are not worthy of my brilliance. Like it would it would either explode your mind or I see no I see no point in wasting time with you because I'm throwing pearls to swine here. If I legitimately answer a question, Uh, do you find them to be the same people or in, in that respect. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of similarities. And honestly, if I had both of their jobs or either one of their jobs for 20 plus years, I'd probably think the media was a waste of my time too, which is sounding unfair. But like, look, I host a podcast yeah. and there's plenty of people that do this job that I've just like, I don't, I don't have any time for your opinions on yeah. stuff. So yeah. I don't, I don't, it's not like I don't understand it, but sometimes I think the effort is excessive in being so dismissive where it's like, you know what I mean? Like what's, what's the goal here to, to use more energy on something that doesn't even matter. But Belichick to his credit, if you're in the trusted circle, he then becomes very revealing. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, like I didn't love when he pushed back on the draft pick stuff recently where, and then he's like, well, we've had a few good ones too. It's like, man, you've had a bad run. You've had like a really bad run and everybody else would have to answer for it. It's okay to ask you these questions, but he felt like it was, it was not worthy of of him being asked. But then there's other moments where I think the people that can, I don't know, you know, I don't know how the trust grows. I would hope it wouldn't be just, Hey, I'm never going to criticize you, but he cares about history so much that I think in those moments when he's very revealing, it's a huge reward for all of us. Like whenever I've seen some of that real access stuff with Belichick, I think he's incredible. I mean, look, he's obviously one of the most impressive guys who's run a team in, in any of our lifetimes. I would never deny him any of that stuff. I just think some of these smaller things are kind of a waste of time. Let's do Belichick Christmas, though. Why did you end up at his place? <laughs> well, oh, no, no. Okay. I, I wasn't in. I wasn't okay. In, okay. It was Christmas fell on a, it was either a Wednesday or a Thursday. So there was media access on Christmas Day, and and Bill comes to the podium. Now this would I believe this was two thousand and seven. So like I, I was there all the time, and Bill comes to the microphone, and and I, I don't know if you remember if, how much time you spent at the Patriots facility. I didn't. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. I was okay. just a talk show host. When you go to a news conference, a lot of times they'll send. There's always the cameras there to gather the sound bites, but live reporters, there can be less and less, especially for a Belichick news conference when they know they're not going to get anything. This is obviously pre-Zoom days, everything else like that. I'm telling you, there were there were seven uh, photographers there, right, running the video cameras, but they couldn't care less. They were just shooting the cameras. There were maybe three physical human beings in the room on Christmas Day. And they had a practice and they had availability. So I go, and he gets up to the podium and he goes, and I'm like thinking, I, you know, I, I don't have a wife and kids, but I got, you know, my brother and my sister, they invited me to their house for that Christmas. And I'm, I'm here, I'm covering, trying to get a soundbite out of Bill Belichick on Christmas day. And during a playoff push, right. It was week 16, maybe even going into week 17, depending on how the calendar felt. And he comes up to the podium and he goes, 
well, first thing, uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. <laughs> he said, it. I can't do a Belichick, obviously, but just the fact that he, you know, in his voice, just want to say Merry Christmas to everyone. We had a good, good practice this morning, you know, like that. And I'm like thinking, I just heard Merry Christmas from Bill Belichick, like, but what, what am I doing? It was an accounting of, of my life at the time. So that, yeah, that's I, not, that's not a terrible Belichick. I could just see him being like, you know, Santa, Santa gets a lot of the credit, but it's not just Santa, you know, the elves, they have a lot of depth at the elves position. You know, the reindeers do their part, you know, all, all three phases, Christmas, you know, it's not just one day you build to it. So, uh, I think you guys, you know, the elves, you guys are overlooking the elves. Bad boys and girls. I'm just going to talk about the good boys and girls that are here. We're trying to we're trying to win a, a holiday. I don't know how the hell I'm supposed to transition into. Yeah, I know. Was, yeah. yeah, no, no, no. It's not the the impersonation's bad. I just now I'm like, okay, how do I get into a Rams question? So I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to get out. We we both are out here. I'm high on the Rams. I just am because when you look at what McVay was able to do yeah. statistically offensively, also realizing like if you look at some of the pressure numbers and play action, like Stafford is basically a completely like times whatever you want to say version of golf in certain elements of the game that play perfectly what McVay did. And yet McVay's offense still statistically he- held up with golf. I am very bullish on them and the fact the personnel on defense showed us even at the end of last year without even having the quarterback part of it because of the injury and everything else, like this was still a very competitive team. So I know there's a lot of excitement out there. We both see it all the time for the Rams. People can make Rams jokes all they want, but I think they're a very serious contender this year in the NFC. I, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think the fact that Matthew Stafford, I'm quite sure, did not take one snap in the preseason. That indicates to me that McVay saw and heard whatever he needed to see and hear in the meeting rooms on the practice field to say, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. And diversity of weapons. Uh, obviously, the Cam Akers injury is a tough, tough one for them. Um, but the division, it's the, it's the toughest division in football or at least the most diversified division in football where I could easily talk myself into all four teams winning that division, including the Arizona Cardinals. I could absolutely talk myself into them winning it. And so it's the old, someone's got to come out of there and is going to get the home game. Um, But why not the Rams? Absolutely. Why not the Rams? And Aaron Donald is still the best, if not the second best player in the NFL. And Ramsey ain't far behind either. So I, I could see them putting it together. And they're, they're not got to score 31 a game to beat people, but I think Stafford will have those type of games. And and you want to talk about a guy who's got to feel like he got let out of jail. You know, he, he wanted that. The whole You remember the whole thing about his house in Detroit? Uh, you know, he put up his house for sale in Detroit, you know, big mansion in the suburbs of Detroit and whatnot. And his his wife had to go out on social media and say, no, it's because, you know, we've got a swimming pool and and uh, our kids are getting old enough that we think it, it might be dangerous for them to be around the pool without supervision, like contorted into this whole thing. No, he was he was done. He gave everything he thinks that, that he could that he could. And now it's time for him after making probably 200 million in the league to say, I got. I got three years, maybe four years, something like that to win something significant. And so I, I think the Rams absolutely could be a major player in the NFC this year. And I, I imagine, and I, I think I'm remembering this right. You, you were down for all the in-person stuff for the Super Bowl this past year, despite the limited access, correct? 
I was, it was very limited, but yeah, I was there physically at, on yeah. game day and in Tampa for a few days prior. Yeah. So the Kansas city storyline is really interesting because you go back to that game and you go, okay, your tackles are a mess. Um, they've revamped it. I mean, but we're talking about it being a different group, but the group necessarily when they were healthy, were still really good. So it's, it, if the storyline is played out like, Hey, Kansas city had to overhaul that all whole offensive line. Well, you did because of retirements and, and, but not because it was a bad unit all season. It was bad in that game because of the limited availability of, of the guys that are normally in those positions. Did you get any any feel off of that of like a, a mad Mahomes, a, a Kansas City team that, you know, like, oh, wait a minute, we actually are capable of losing? Because, I mean, it's just so tough to pick against him. You go through his resume of games, you go look at look at even the losses here, like none of this is even that bad. And then it was horrible on the biggest stage. Honestly, I think they did a, po- a, a poor job of trying to redesign some of the routes and make it a little bit easier on Mahomes instead of running in reverse 20 yards every snap. But did you pick up anything from that from a team that feels invincible uh, and, and experiencing a really awful night, an embarrassing night? Yeah, uh, well, look, at they patched it up just personnel-wise. And I think the talent on the offensive line is good enough, but, but Mahomes does not need a top three offensive line to be able to, to dominate a game and take over a game, right? I mean, they were a mess, and they came up against the buzzsaw that was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that I haven't seen a defense peak like that. A defense that was good earlier in the year, but a defense that just got better every week, and, and they had three or four players that blossomed into stars, mega, maybe even mega stars. You're talking about Devin White, the linebacker, and and uh, uh, well, we knew about Shaq Barrett already, but um, Vita Vea, um, but guys that, that, that it was, it was the perfect storm of bad things that happened. And I still think Mahomes played one of the better Super Bowls I've ever seen played given the circumstances in a blowout loss right now. That's not a category in and of itself, but the dude still, still could have came within this close to throwing three touchdowns, four touchdowns in that game, uh, bouncing off guys face mask after doing the, you know, the snowball, uh, the snowball fight throw or the dodgeball, you know, meme throw. Anyway, to, to get to your point specifically, here's what I'd be worried about if I was Kansas City Chiefs fans. In the in the preseason, he did take snaps, right? He he got into preseason games. There were a couple of plays that I've seen some different film study types diagram where he, the, the pocket was there to step up in and he bailed out of the pocket. Now, he might do that because he's one of the most dangerous and 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 effective guys out of the pocket, run pass, uh, you know, d- d- determination in the middle of it. But the pocket, the routes were there and the pocket was there to be stepped up into and he didn't step up and do it. And it wasn't like a super clean pocket. Like there was going to be some noise in there if he did. And he chose to bail out. Small sample size, but was he impacted by the end of the stretch run and specifically the Super Bowl last year where he felt like he wasn't safe in there? that'll that'll prove itself that'll prove itself out but that'd be that's but that's nitpicking for a team that almost everyone will have as the AFC favorite going into this year yeah I agree with you on Mahomes. like I didn't leave that game thinking any differently other than about Mahomes other than I was actually like shockingly impressed still because yeah. I was like what what how is he even doing some of the stuff that he's yeah. doing and yeah. then you have a Tampa team on the other side like I was looking through some of the health numbers like their return of how many guys played like 200 snaps. I think it's the top 31 guys in snap totals from last season. All of them are back. Oh, yeah. So they had an unprecedented run of health, which is, you know, just it's, it's the luck of the draw sometimes. But the fact that all of that depth is back, 
um, is another reason why Tampa. You believe Brady was really that injured last year? This whole knee thing that came out during the preseason or during the uh, off season and into the preseason. You know, I do, but I I think there's we have like a weird. This is something I've thought about, and I don't know that I've I've hashed out the thought as well as I need to. But I I think there's times where we completely underrate how special these guys are, but then we can also kind of overrate what these guys do with the pain and the tolerance and then the injuries. And I think there's guys that have significant injuries that just play. And if, if they want that information to get out, it'll get out. You know what I mean? Like I, there's, there's all these defensive linemen with horrible shoulders. And if you went in there after seven or eight years of playing, and then you said, oh, this guy played a whole season with this, this, and this, there's probably another hundred defensive linemen that'd be like, dude, I could, I could say the exact same thing about my deal or anybody that has the tears in the knee. I think the greatest part about Brady is that even with a significant injury, he can find a way to play the position where he's not going to be as limited, especially if we're talking about like the lower half. I mean, shoulder for a quarterback, you know, it's a totally different deal. It can be the end of it. Um, But I don't want to ever sound dismissive because we've done it long enough where you're you're around these guys and and there's so many times you'll hear about something, you'll see something, you're so impressive. But then the media loves to kind of overplay the significance of an injury when it's like it is a significant injury, but you're forgetting that that's kind of the job, if that makes sense. No, totally does. And to the extent that it was injured, you know, we can't the greatest doctors of the world can't get inside someone else's body and and uh, and feel that pain and manage it and whatever. But Brady, to your point, to me is like like a UFC, like a great UFC grappler. Now, I'm sure you've talked to, to many more than I have, probably, but I've, I've always heard lots that. of grapplers. Yeah, and lots of grapplers. <laughs> their specialty gra- is on the ground. No, but they when they're in a, some type of a lock, they can transfer energy to different parts of their body. So they do not fatigue while they're doing that, whatever, the Python boa constrictor type type movement that they have. And they can transfer, you know what, it's right here, but I, you know, I can go from my left shoulder to my right shoulder and still get the pressure on his neck this way. I believe Brady is that way. He's that type of an athlete where obviously physically gifted, not so much, but that he that he knows himself and knows what's required and knows, okay, I can transfer this much energy or transfer uh, my balance or throw it this way where I can get the job done. And he's the most maniacal competitor competitor you and I have ever met. And he would do that, and he would say, if the thing tears, it tears, whatever. I, I got to get through this, especially in the season last year with with whatever he had to prove uh, last year in Tampa. Yeah, he certainly had the motivation. That's why I, I got to tell you, Florio's tweets every now and then, he had one this week where, I, I mean, look, he also had something during the season. I know he probably doesn't like me. That's fine. I'll be okay with it. But Probably doesn't um, like me either, and I'm hot and cold on him, but yeah, go right. But. I mean, he had like this Ravens practice deal where it was like he was saying it could be the end of the season. And it was like, man, it's probably not going to be the end of the football season. And then he had this Brady thing where it was like the ultimate middle finger to Belichick would be for the Bucs to sign Cam Newton. You're like, I think Brady covered the revenge part of this. I think he did it last year. I think think winning the Super Bowl his first year away when you missed the playoffs is probably, I don't know. That's just me. I don't, I'm not a reporter. Just a guy at home watching. Speaking of being at home watching, I want to finish with this. Yeah. How many years is this now for you? This then will be season 13 on NFL Red Zone. Season 13. Okay. You're terrific at it. 
we know this. It is a unique skill to have because you you bring, you know, this is one of the things about Mike Greenberg that I don't know that people understand how great he is. The sense of urgency that he brings to every single broadcast and carries that through all four hours of the radio show, two, three hours he's doing get up. Um, Greeny, Greeny has an incredible stamina to the the terrific pace that he provides. Like mm-hmm. he is, he's very unique in that way. And that's why he's, he's as successful as he is. You have a pace and energy that carries throughout this entire thing. Even that, that bad second slate that we talk about, because, you know, like the NBA with the TNT stuff that they used to do more so than they do now, but like they wanted those TNT broadcasts. They didn't want anybody messing with them because they want to be able to use that big number somewhere else. They've gotten more lenient about that, obviously with the, the, the challenges the last couple of seasons, but you have that energy all the way through, but you're doing it 13 years. I'll ask you, did they kind of look at this as like, hey, we'll, pull, we'll throw Hanson on this, you know? Like, is it that, you know, what is anybody really going to watch this? And now it's turned into the thing, at least for social media, uh, you know, clearly because it doesn't have the ad revenue, it's it's probably not thought of as the same way. So is it true to think that it was like, hey, you know, go ahead, man, <laughs> go do this thing in the beginning because on the hierarchy of where you're at at NFL Network, it certainly wasn't like you were the biggest star. And now you've blown up with it. So it's kind of a two-part question, which I'm never supposed to do. <laughs> give, me the, give me the origins and then to what ultimately, like how much longer you want to do this because like all of us, even though you own this real estate, which is kind of what we always want, once we get that real estate, we always kind of start to move the goalposts and think about the next thing. Uh, okay. Well, to answer your four-part question. Yeah, that was a lot there. That was bad form. <laughs> My man. Hey, for those watching, I love Ryan. I have been a fan of his and he knows this. Uh, somehow I got a hold of his phone number one time and I used to text you. I'm sitting in my driveway because because I, I used to just listen to the radio in the car. And when you and SVP were doing your thing, for whatever reason, I just didn't have or listen to the radio in the house. I would sit in the driveway to, until you guys finished the segment because I was so captivated by it. So any any busting of chops is is all in, in good fun. Uh, but to answer your 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 multi applied question here. No. One, I got it. And I think some people probably did think, ah, you know, this is a little sidecar thing that, hey, great if it blows up. In fact, I had an executive, I won't name him, but I had an executive come up to me during the middle, maybe three quarters of the way through the first season who confessed to me, Scott, nobody knew this was going to be as as big as what we feel it will be. And, and and I was like, well, not nobody, because I went after it, Ryan. I called the talent coordinator when I heard in the summer before 2009 season when it when Red Zone began. I said, is it true we're doing this thing and this is how what you're going to. And they're like, yep. And I was like, I want it. Like, put me on the list, audition me, whatever you want to do. And I was already, like I said, a roving reporter for NFL media. So I think they knew about my my passion, my energy, my you know enthusiasm for the game, knowledge of the game. And and I got it. And I was like, we're going to I sent a text message and I, I this is going to sound dumb. I sent a text message to Eric Weinberger, the executive producer at the time at NFL media and to Steve Bornstein, who is a legend in our in our business, used to run ESPN back in the day. At this point in 2009, he was running NFL Network. And I sent both of them, I said, and I mixed a metaphor, I said, I'm going to tear the cover off the ball with this thing. Because I envisioned it as a football fan. And I said, if we do this right, there's no better way to watch football. If you're a Packers fan, I get it. You want to watch every snap of the Packers game. I get it. We don't want to impose on that. But if 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 you're not if your favorite team isn't playing, what what's not to love about NFL Red Zone? 
So I wanted it. And I, and I sent that text and I'm not joking. This is going to sound like hyperbole, but I, I mean it. I was like, I need to have a moment where Tom Brady legendarily, maybe urban myth went up to Bob Kraft and said, I'm the best decision you're your, your franchise has ever made. I'm not equating myself to Tom Brady. I'm just saying I really did believe this thing was going to explode and that my skill set would, would marry well with it. To answer the second part of the question, how long can I do it? I don't know. I just signed a new contract. Thankfully, I'm very blessed in a, in a changing media landscape. I signed a new year, a multi-year deal. And, um, you know, I do it for the money too. So as long as the, the, the money is good, but can I keep up the enthusiasm and be real with it, to be genuine with it? I don't want to be like some people in our business, and I won't name names, who have gotten their shtick and they just like, ah, and that's what they do when they get on the air. Like my enthusiasm, I guarantee you, Ryan, week one, we're right around the corner here. It, it, I'm going I'm to try and pin the needle with the enthusiasm because I know our audience is that way. And as long as I can keep doing that, as long as I can tap into that and serve the audience in a way that, that they love and I still have fun with the job and, and my bladder still can handle the uh, requirements, then, then I'm going to keep doing it. As long as y'all have me, I'm going to try and do it. I feel like your urination patterns have been covered for years now. So uh, I, I'm glad that we didn't have to go into it. You can follow Scott Hansen at Scott Hansen. And we're just, well, I don't know, man, we're just about a week away from it. So I can't wait to check in and have another great season, man. I appreciate it. We'll see you on Sundays, Ryan. Great to be with you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm really excited to talk to my man here, Brad Edwards. Uh, for those that don't know, we were at ESPN together. We traveled for, I think it was five years, because I did college game day for six years, McShay that first year, and then Trevor Maddich, Brad and I. A lot of stories from the road over those five years, and one of my favorite dudes to talk college ball with. My favorite part of him is when we realized it was like, hey, you don't follow me on Twitter, and you were like, why would I follow you? <laughs> He's like, I, there's a lot of NBA stuff. Like, I'm only about college football. That's all we want. And he wrote a book about Alabama. Uh, he went to Alabama. He's actually not a crazy Alabama homer. He, he was always very very neutral about it, which is hard to do. And he is probably as smart as anyone I've ever talked to when we're talking college ball. So it's good to see you, man. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you. Uh, I have to come back and join you every week for all those compliments, get my self-esteem up. You know, it's just, I, I really appreciate it. And I've missed you, man. It's been, it was, it was fun all those years and haven't seen you since you left Bristol. Yeah. Wow. It's like you've been Gosh, busy or something. Yeah, I know. It's it's almost like I moved. Um, for those that don't know, like Brad's just a machine. He's just a machine. And, you know, I actually use Brad as an example when younger people ask me about the business. I go, you know, the best thing you can do, it's not easy, is you have to find a way to be valuable to a company in a way other people aren't. And so like McShay's an example. I go, McShay and another guy started up this scouting service. They started writing their own reports and ESPN were like, these guys are really good. Let's go ahead and buy their company. You know, Brad was somebody that worked in research behind the scenes because you'd just be like, hey, Brad, what's going on with the BCS? 
And Brad lived with all these other ESPN employees that I was friends with too back in the day when they were all younger. And Brad was the guy that figured out how to project the BCS formula, right? And now once he explained it to me, I'll admit, I was like, oh, I think maybe this isn't as hard as daunting, but it was so, <laughs> it was so scary. Um, and then that's what Brad did. Brad was the guy that went out as a researcher and then was in front of the mic, in front of the camera, because he was the guy that was like, what do you think is going to happen? And the years spent with Brad helped me understand the BCS. I thought as well as anybody else that was on the air that wasn't Brad because, the, you know, you're you and I had the resource of you. Although there was a couple early Sunday flights where I was just like, Brad, I don't. I don't care about <laughs> Iowa. I don't care about Overload. Iowa State. Yeah, like, sh shut it down, man. It's, yeah, <laughs> no, that was getting a, getting a seat next to me on a plane. You know, when I was in college football mode, was was always a dangerous thing. Even if you didn't know me, you know, just you bring it up, man, you, you're gonna you're gonna have your ear talked off until that plane touches down. But yeah, it was hard for me to turn it off. But at the same time, I guess that's why a seven hour show was a good thing for me on Saturday. <laughs> I never ran out of gas. So. Of all the things that you taught me, and I think, you know, people looked at the transition of the BCS, okay, well, teams and programs need to start doing these things. And, you know, I'd go, maybe, you know, maybe they do. And now with the playoff, it was like, okay, now it's totally different. So teams should do this. This is important. Let's just start with this kind of a surface question. How much of a difference do you think it is now, whether you're an AD or scheduling or you're a conference and you're trying to trying to juke things a little bit, because I want to get to some of that stuff that used to happen and maybe is still happening, where how how much do you think it's really changed in how programs present themselves as far as perception to try to get a bunch of people in the room to think their team is good? Look, I think as far as scheduling, uh, what you've seen a lot of in, in the last couple of years is this belief by athletic directors that the playoff is going to expand. And because of that, there's going to be more value in just putting it on the line in the non-conference and, and maybe more reward than there is risk. The problem is we're still at a moment now where with the four-team playoff, I, I, don't, I don't know that there is the same risk-reward balance. And that Georgia-Clemson game, I think, is going to be a fascinating study if you get to the end. And if, if Georgia were to say went out all the way to the SEC championship game and then Clemson wins out, was it really worth it for Clemson to have played that game? Are they going to end up getting shut out of the playoff as a one-loss ACC champion because of it? I mean, there's obviously so much that could still happen. Uh, but but I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, ADs have kind of been looking at is this idea that strength of schedule is going to matter. We were told with the start of the playoff, strength of schedule is, is one of those components that they would want to really consider highly. But up to this point, and I'm not saying that there's an example I can point to of an egregious omission, uh, but but the reality is we've yet to see a two team, excuse me, a two loss team make the playoff. I think we all know in 2017 Auburn would have gotten in with two losses if they hadn't lost a third time in the SEC title game to Georgia. It it can happen. It would have happened in that instance. Um, but are we really going to see the selection committee go out and say, hey, you know what, this team's got two losses? But we think that they're better than that one loss team. And the reason we think they're better is because of who they lost to. And, and so until we see that play out, I, I really don't know that there is this advantage in, in going out and testing yourself out of conference because it, it still seems that to the majority of people in that selection committee, that loss column is the most important criterion. Yeah, you're right. I just think it's human nature when you look at it and you go, hey, there's a loss in there. And that's why I think in the BCS era, as much as we want to talk about strength of schedule, I wouldn't have scheduled anybody if I were in an AD. You know, I always respected the programs 
And a lot of the top programs did do this. It's like, give me one game. Just give me one. Back when it was always eight conference games and four non-conference. Just give me one. You know what I mean? Don't, don't give me you four non-conference. Right. But, you know, some schools, whether it's SC, you know, Stanford, you know, Ohio State's always scheduled really well. LSU would always take on a bunch of different people. Alabama's had always this kind of neutral site thing, which is now going to run yeah. its course where they've dominated these games. But By the way, you, why do teams continue to take those games from Alabama? I mean, it's Miami's horrifying. the latest example. All, all you're doing is guaranteeing that you're going to start the season on a bad note. <laughs> I think the average score now, is it 30 in those games? And we went to a couple. Like, yeah, remember oh, going to Bama? Yeah, we were at several of them. We were at Bama, and, Michigan, and it's so funny, too, because, you know, the other program's a big-time program with history. They're coming in. Everybody's hyped. The kids are talking themselves into it. They're on the sideline. They're waving the towels, and it's fucking 14 nothing five minutes later. Yeah, and, and look, Miami, we'll just use Miami from this past weekend as an example. They were ranked number 14 going in. They might legitimately be a top 15 team. They sure didn't look, look like it, and they're going to come away from that game dejected and believing we're not even a top 25 team like we were so overrated and it, it could take five weeks for them to get their confidence back and they might never get it back and that's the danger in playing a game like that it's like you know sure you go test yourself against the best but you know i don't know you you know you really became a college football fan about 15 years ago right yeah somewhere no, in that i mean range. look i i loved it i always liked it um but the level that I was at at ESPN and then traveling and then being all over the country and getting to experience this. I mean, it's just like as much as we all love the NFL, the Saturday thing, the geography, the way the culture is attached to the program, sometimes how the, the program and the staff and their style of play represents where they are in the country. It's just unlike any other sport that we care about this much. So, yeah, I would say that even though I have depth of knowledge going back historically of just being a guy on TV, like the level that it cranked up to in 06 when I started at ESPN. So 15 years is a yeah. perfect number. Yeah. And so right around that time, I mean, 2007, we had one of the craziest seasons of all time. Ever. You know, you had just all this rotating going on in the top two teams losing left and right. And I think somewhere a little bit more than 10 years ago, um, we were at a time in college football where it was very possible in a given week for number 20 to knock off number one, where you had a lot of instances where the top ranked team or maybe the top three or four, they probably had more talent overall, but their quarterback wasn't as good. And so if you've got a guy like a Matt Ryan, you know, you can, you can on a given day knock off a number one or a number two and end up having a great season. You know, we, we saw a, a bunch of those through the years where you had like, a you know, Philip Rivers at NC State, Eli Manning at Ole Miss, where their, their supporting cast wasn't as good, but they were so much better at the most important position that, that they were able to, you know, pull an upset here and there. What's happened in recent years is that the teams that have the most talent overall, and they're like four or five of them that just load up on the four and five stars every season. If they have a quarterback, I mean, if they have a really good quarterback, no one other than the teams in that group of four or five is capable of beating them. And we saw this with, with LSU a few years ago with Joe Burrow. I mean, with all the other years, LSU hasn't had a quarterback. You know, they've been prone to being upset by teams outside of that group. But when they had Joe Burrow, no one had a shot at him except an Alabama or a Clemson, someone on that level. And now we're, you know, we're seeing this where, I mean, obviously Alabama is about to have its last three quarterbacks all start in the NFL on day one. Um, 
how many teams in the country, even if Alabama goes out and plays its C game, are capable of beating them if they have a quarterback at that level? I mean, yeah, you, you, would have to, you would have to That's have a it. bad coach, which is not the case at all with Saban. Right, right. You would have to have a guy that would be like frustrating and stubborn as a play caller and have Bryce Young throw four picks. You know, I mean, like the old right. Miss game. Remember the old Miss game at Alabama? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a Chad Kelly game. And Bama still had the ball with a chance minus five in the turnover column. Right. right. Minus five in the turnover column with Ole Miss also having scored a touchdown on a ball that the quarterback threw as he was falling down it bounced off somebody's helmet into the hands of a receiver who took it 50 more yards for a touchdown. So it took all that stuff for Ole Miss with a pretty good quarterback to be able to beat Alabama. And, and so I guess what I'm getting at is I think things have shifted now to not only are, see, we've also entered this, this phase of college football where it's no longer defense wins championships. I, I think the, the, the last people who were holding on to that have finally relented now and, and will admit, okay, that just having the best defense in the country is not going to get you very far if your offense isn't well above average. And, and then, the, of course, that's a concern if, you're, if you watch that Georgia-Clemson game the other night. If you're a fan of either team, you're like, okay, defense is really good. But these days, if your offense isn't a lot better than what we saw, and look, I mean, a lot of that was good defense. But both of those teams have a long way to go on offense as well. You know, can you beat an Alabama if you can't play a lot better offense than that? And I, I don't know. I don't, and I, I think that's one of the things that's made this premium on quarterback um, such a big deal. And when, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, Tua and Mac Jones and you've got, you know, Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields and you've got Sean Watson and Trevor Lawrence, it's like, who else has a shot at knocking off one of these teams? And I mean, obviously you got, you know, Oklahoma at a, from a talent standpoint, pure talent across the roster is not at the same level as those other teams. But when you've got a Baker Mayfield and a Kyler Murray, even a Jalen Hurts, you got a puncher's chance. And everybody else in the country pretty much has no chance. And, and, and of course, Georgia is up there with those others talent-wise, but up to this point, they haven't had the quarterback who was quite good enough to be able to knock off, you know, two of those teams in a row. And, uh, and so that's why, unfortunately, I mean, we're, we're at about the most top heavy stage of college football that, you know, maybe there's been since the very early days when, you know, that all the Ivy league teams were dominating. Yeah. That part of it is frustrating. Cause you know, I love that. Oh, seven years, my second year at ESPN, it was the first year I started going to some of the games and, you know, Brad used to write the research pack for all of us. And it was funny because like, you could see how, when we get, Brad also tipped me off to this one. Like each school would send out their research packs. And I remember the one that like really pissed us off. It was Oklahoma State. Once A&M and Missouri went to the SEC, Oklahoma State's information department started counting those wins as SEC wins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because they had left the conference years later. And Brad's like, wait a minute. Did you see this note? And I was like, yeah, I saw the note. And then the other one was 07. Like Boston College was ranked second, speaking of Matt Ryan that year. Cal made it to number two. Wasn't it West Virginia a pit game away from playing for the national championship? Oh, absolutely. And so yeah. we had I, these, I, this. Is, this is 2007 in a nutshell. 2007 is the most ridiculous year of my lifetime in college. Well, right. Football, we'll probably so. never see it again. But right. we were, if Dennis Dixon of Oregon does not blow out his knee on a Thursday night game, I think it was against Arizona. Yeah, it was. You could have you could have had an Oregon versus West Virginia national championship game. And, and, and 
even if you take one of those teams out, you also had Missouri and Kansas that were in position late in the season. Now, one of them was going to have to beat Oklahoma, which probably wasn't going to happen that year. Uh, but the fact that you've got all these teams that were, I mean, it's, it's not just they weren't, weren't blue bloods. I mean, these are teams that have been, you know, way off the radar for not just most of college football history, but even a lot of them for recent college football history at that time. Just kind of came out of South Florida, I think, got up to number two that year. It was a weird, weird year where, you know, you just had programs that you weren't used to seeing there. And it was a lot of fun. Of course, it still ended up with LSU and Ohio State in the national championship game. And, you know, you get same old, same old. But um, it was fun while it lasted. No, it's it's a good point because I mean if you go back to the early nineties, that Colorado, Georgia Tech stuff, and you're like, oh, so some people argue, hey guys, it's always been this top heavy. But this is unfortunate with a new format. It's probably what will lead to the expansion happening, um, which we know was gonna happen. We always knew it was gonna happen. It didn't matter what they said, because you know, whatever they had set up the system, they probably weren't expecting that Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, and Clemson were gonna take up twenty of the first twenty-eight playoff spots, right. which is to your point. You know, you're loaded every year and now you're all these teams are adding NFL quarterbacks every time. Like, how are you supposed to compete with them? So, like, when I watch the Big Ten slate this weekend, even if Ohio State looks shaky, which, as I mentioned in the open, like, hey, guess what? Not every single top recruit is going to look like a first round pick the first game he plays in in his career, especially when it's kind of a prime time one for C.J. Stroud against Minnesota. Minnesota is a capable football team. You know, Flex, Flex brought in more talent. It's a conference game. But now if you're looking at the Big Ten, because I want to ask you how this relates to what the Big 12 used to do. In the BCS era, let's just do it this way and you take it wherever you want to go. Because now the Big Ten has a bunch of losses because they all played each other. This is the opposite of what the Big 12 used to do in the BCS. What was that? Yeah, so the Big 12 would play all their non-conference games up front. And then they would kind of backload the conference schedule so that what they thought were the best teams in the league will all be playing each other in November. And so you're going to end up by default with a bunch of teams that are, you know, eight and oh, nine and one, things like that going head to head. And you're going to you're going to basically manufacture top 10 matchups. They might not be in reality top 10 teams. They certainly didn't all finish there. But at the moment, you know, it looks like a huge game. All eyes are focused on that game around the country. And, um, you know, it ends up being one of those showcase games where the winner gets a huge boost from it. And I, I think that's what the Big Ten will probably miss out on this year um, if the wrong teams lose these conference games early. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if they did. I mean, obviously Ohio State got through. Um, you know, Penn State might be the better team than Wisconsin, but I think you know, all things considered, that neither one of them looks like a team that's going to beat an Ohio State team once it gets more experience under its belt. So. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. That might still be a one-team league as far as as far as all that goes. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, you're kind of setting up for, you know, going into October with these teams having more losses than they normally would. They're going to be further back in the rankings, and it's just going to be more work to try to climb up and create top ten matchups in the second half of the season in that conference. And uh, you know, I don't know. At this point, at this point, if you're the the Big Ten, you're just hoping that that maybe. Iowa is as good as they looked the other day and that they, you know, make a nice run to the Big Ten title game and you get a high profile conference championship. That's that's kind of the best case scenario at this point. Yeah, barring, exactly. barring that, Michigan finally doing something. Yeah, you know, that really hasn't been the case, though, for the Big Ten, where you feel like, OK, let's get this marquee title game. We've almost always gone into it with this revamped version of the Big Ten, the Legends and Leaders era 
where you were like, wait, what, you know, like what's, this is a bit of an afterthought. And I think, look, you can still say the same thing for Oklahoma and the big 12. Like we're so focused on every team, not only getting the playoff, but being a, a championship winner. You know, we're, we're really, I think one of the unfortunate things with college football with the, not just realignment, but the importance on the playoff, the importance, the importance on the BCS title game is we're incredibly dismissive of other accomplishments. Like we act as if the Rose Bowl's boring now. I don't, but you know, you, I think there was even an Oregon team one year. They're like, oh, the Rose Bowl again. And you're just going, do you guys know your own history? Well, of course you don't. Or the, the Oklahoma running this big 12 where it's like what they're doing is amazing. And I'll admit there's, there's probably multiple times a year where I'll look at Oklahoma on certain weekends where I go, they, okay, this, these, this team is different. This team is different. Look at the O-line. No one's going to be able to rattle them. They can outscore everybody. Yeah, I know the defense isn't what we want it to be elsewhere. We could even say that off the first week because the hope was Oklahoma coming in was better defensively. I don't know if it's just that, you know, week one against Tulane and the game got kind of weird because they got up early. You know, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. But when Oklahoma loses, you know, they had the Georgia loss to come back in the playoff. But the other three losses they've had in the playoffs are against maybe the best LSU team we've ever seen. Alabama and Clemson is one seeds. The same thing happens with Notre Dame where people are like, oh, I'm so sick of them. And you're like, what? You're sick of a team that's actually good enough to actually get to the playoff. And so even with Notre Dame um, going down and beating Florida State, which, you know, they were up and it was it was a scary moment for them in Tallahassee. My, my thought is that they're still a good football team. But yeah. we don't. We're like. We don't care about any of it anymore. You well, know, the national conversation. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what you're talking about, Notre Dame at the moment is a great example because who would have ever thought that Notre Dame could do something quietly, right? But but they have. Like under Brian Kelly over the last five or six years, they have become probably five years. They have very quietly become a, a solid top six to top eight program in the country. Like, like they're one of the few teams that you can count on every year to be in contention for the playoff, and they're going to be really good. They're just there's just such a gap between them and the very best teams that it makes them seem insignificant. And and even as you watch them, like last night, and you're like, you know what? They might. I mean, look, they they didn't look like a top ten team last night, but I think they still could be. But are they good enough to be able to beat a, a one or two seed when they get to the playoff? I, I don't think they are, and I'm not sure that they will be. And, and I, I think that's unfortunately where we are with the sport at the moment, is that there's such a big gap between the top two or three teams in a given season and everyone else that it just kind of sucks all the fun out of it. Because, you know, it's one thing to get into a playoff. And, you know, I mean, you were on that show with me for all those years, and uh, it was really pre-playoff in fact I think your last year on the show the last show we ever did together was before the final BCS championship game out in Pasadena and um and so I've kind of gone through this playoff era and and I've, I've said it so many times in recent years there's a difference between being good enough to make the playoff and being good enough to win it there's a big difference between the two and we've seen it play out with a lot of four seeds. now granted there have been two four seeds that have won it so it's not true every year but a lot of years, even at the midway point of the season, you can tell that's the case. And we don't want to believe it as sports fans because we see every other sport out there where if you just get into the playoff, you got a chance. But college football is not like that. I mean, football in general is just one of those sports because there are 11 guys out there on the field and you've got 22 different guys when you include both the offense and the defense. You know, you, it's not one of those where you get the 
you know, one or two shooters get hot in basketball or a pitcher or two get hot in baseball, you know, the overall talent is going to prevail in football, even in a, you know, one game scenario like that. It doesn't even have to be a series. And so I, I think that's the unfortunate thing about it is that it's just so difficult to get excited about a one versus four game in most of these years with the playoff. And why do people think it's going to be better if we expand to eight or 12? I mean, do you have any idea what one versus eight is going to look like? We can only hope four versus five just delivers an awesome game every year because that's the only way it's going to get any better. Yeah, the, the reason people want it is so that they don't feel like they're getting screwed anymore. And I would argue you weren't really getting screwed during this version of it. Right. But it becomes personal. It's inclusion. Right. It becomes a really a, a selfish thing. Like the, the biggest thing that I learned about college football fans, and I've done this rant two different times, once on the podcast and once on the radio show, where you're just so used to getting screwed over in daily life that you just apply the same principles to your college football team. You know, there's still Oklahoma State fans that feel like they should have been in the game against Alabama. And you were like, under no rational. yeah. No, no, I mean against Alabama instead of LSU, right? Instead of the rematch that we got. And every argument that I heard was terrible. You know, and it was it was just there was no lining this team up against this team saying, yeah, this team should be playing in the national championship. And more often than not, when you look at it, and I guess sometimes the national conversation reaction to Notre Dame, like Notre Dame's supposed to apologize for being in the playoff twice. Like after Notre Dame loses one of those playoff games that none of us really probably expected them to win deep down, maybe we thought they'd be more competitive. Uh, it turns out I never want to see them in the playoff again. I mean, the same thing happens to Oklahoma. And you're just going like, look, what what are we supposed to do? Not be here? Like, who do you want? And that's why right. I'm with you. Who would you, you rather like, see? Right. Yeah, would and you so, rather see a weaker team is going to get beat worse? And that's why with the playoff expansion, which, hey, when it happens, I'm going to watch the games. We're going to talk about it. We're going to be all excited. But I, I think the inclusion part of it blinds people to what the actual product will be. And I also think from a playoff committee standpoint and whatever, you know, they'll probably revamp that to make it feel new and it won't matter, is that. Okay, so we get the non-Power 5 in there when the 8-12 version. All right, whatever. Cool, fine. But do you think you're going to get a second non-Power 5, 11-1 team in the playoff for a national championship? Or do you think they're just going to say, hey, you know who we really liked was four-loss Auburn this year? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, all, like, that's what I think is going to happen. And then you're going, why did we play the 12 then? And I, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, oh, the regular season is diminished. You are still diminishing a little bit, but not so much that the returns are still going to be great with viewership and TV dollars and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know that people really, I think the first thing you say is, oh, great, they expanded. My team will have a better chance of getting in. And then when it gets expanded, you're going to go, why is this team even, like, what are we doing with this team right here? Like Florida lost three of their last four games and because they finished 12th, we like their strength of schedule better than Nevada. Like what? What? And that's what's going to happen. So go ahead. Yeah, I, I do think it will be good for the health of the sport. You know, not necessarily for legitimizing the champion or anything like that. In fact, not at all for legitimizing the champion. The champion is already completely legit. But to to give all the fans west of the Rockies uh, the knowledge that they're going to have a team in there. They have something to root for. They have a reason to watch after the middle of October because it feels like it's been three years in a row that we just completely dismissed the Pac-12 at the midway point of the season. West of the and Rockies, I, Brad? It's like west of Chicago. Well, and that might be, that might be true, too, if you if you don't consider Oklahoma. I guess Oklahoma. Right, to win yeah, the whole thing. Right. No, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, guess but, I was doing a, a, you know, sort of a slanted 
Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but but look, that I think I, I think that's bad for the sport, right? You need people to at least think they got a chance to get in there, and you you know from NCAA basketball tournament, for everyone, it's not about winning the whole thing. To just get into it and win a game makes the season a lot of fun for a bunch of teams out there, and and maybe that's what we would gain from an expanded playoff is that you're going to have a lot more fan bases that are more excited about the way, even if it ends with a loss in a semifinal, they're going to come away more excited than if they had won the Fiesta Bowl, you know, as a, you know, second tier New Year's six game. Um, and, and, and so look, that, that's, that's good because it, I mean, look, this is another one of those years where we got Oregon coming up against Ohio state. If Oregon loses that game. And I think at this point we'd all expect them to, what are you what are you watching for the rest of the year in the in the Pac-12? Are you, you're hoping that USC or UCLA can run the table? I mean, it's it's almost diminished to that by the end of week two. And I mean, I, I don't know. I just I I hate it because I've been out there with you for many of those you know games when those teams were good, like USC, Oregon, Washington. Um, there's some great fan bases and some Utah, great, uh, Utah atmospheres, even, yeah. You know? And, and and I just I hate to see it where they feel like they're not really even a part of the sport. And so that's something that does need to change. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, because I, I feel like especially now. But, I, you know, look, if we had the playoff system, I mean, I'll, I'll back it up even further. The BCS lucked out so many years where you were like, oh, my God, what are they going to do with this, this and this? And then we'd have these wipeout final weekends where the BCS got off the hook so many times. And then the BCS people who told us we were never getting a playoff, were like, see, it worked <laughs> out. It worked out. And you just go, okay, we don't even have a decade of information on the playoff format. Like we, if, we, if we did the four-team thing over 20 years, we would get some of these results that people seem to think are impossible, that are never going to happen. But the fact that it's happened in such a top-heavy run, I'm, I'm with you. I hate, I hate some of the conversations we have about this. I mean, it goes back to one of your first points off the Clemson-Georgia thing. But Clemson could have won that game. It was decided on a pick six. All right? Yeah. It, that's it. It was it was kind of a coin toss game. And you don't want to be dismissive of what we saw from Georgia's front because it was horrifying. And this is a carryover of what we saw last year as they closed the game against Cincinnati or closed the season against Cincinnati, um, even though they could have lost that game in Georgia. So we're going to sit here and think that, OK, well, that's this is what this game. This is what this result means in November into December. We don't know that. But the problem is the last five years is that we we would. We would already know it. I just think that we have to remember how different we are in the moment around these conversations where if Clemson is rolling through the ACC, which they should because of that schedule, yeah. that you know there are going to be t- conversations. There'll be topics on talk shows in November where it is, hey, is anybody playing better than Clemson right now? You know, it's going to happen. And then if you go back to that first game, you can start talking yourself into a version of that Georgia Clemson outcome where it actually doesn't mean as much and that it isn't this tiebreaker of Georgia were to lose in the SEC title game. And I think people lose sight of that because the game was two days ago. Yeah, it, it really is predictable in a lot of ways. We, we can already script out what the conversations are going to be in November and first week of December. You see it coming from a mile away because. You look at these schedules, I mean, just back to the point of how difficult these teams are to beat when they have a good quarterback. I mean, everyone, look, it's probably not going to happen. Someone will slip up because that's just the nature of college football. But it's easy to look at it right now and say, Alabama and Georgia are going to be undefeated going to the SEC championship game. I mean, there, there aren't a lot of landmines out there, honestly. If you look at the schedule for both of those teams, you know, Clemson's probably going to run the table. They're going to be undefeated. And so, 
if, if you're looking at it from that standpoint and you're not allowing for chaos, you can really talk yourself into thinking and what I'm about to say might end up being true. Um, but it, it certainly kind of aligns with this idea that these other teams are all going to win out. The Iowa-Iowa State game this weekend could be huge for a one-loss Big Ten champ versus a one-loss Big 12 champ. I mean, you could see a scenario where Iowa is in the Big Ten championship game, Iowa State is in the Big 12 championship game, and an Ohio State or an Oklahoma is beating one of those teams. And it's like, okay, who deserves it more, the Big 12 champ with one loss or the Big Ten champ with one loss? And the answer is going to be, well, whoever beat the winner of the Iowa-Iowa State game is, is the better team. And as ludicrous as that is, especially as much as we know about that Iowa-Iowa State rivalry and how just insane the results can be in week two each season. Like some of these teams look so bad in that game, then they look so good later on. It shouldn't mean anything, but you know the, the selection committee is always trying to connect dots. And they're going to learn something about this team because of what they did against that team that did this against the other team. And uh, it, it, it really could end up being a very meaningful game as far as who gets into the playoff. Um, and that's even assuming that neither Iowa nor Iowa State actually gets in. Uh, but, but as far as conference strength, which conference is better, it could end up you know, being a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge game, and it's a great point, too. There are times you thought you knew that game was going to go completely one way, and then it doesn't make any sense. And then what you thought of the team that ended up losing ends up having this great season. And it's just, you're, you're so right about, um, about that game and shout out to, uh, shout out to Ames this weekend. No, I, I, look, I came away from Saturday, completely convinced Iowa state is winning that game because if you watch both teams play this, this first weekend, there's no reason to believe Iowa state can come within single digits of Iowa, but it's just, a, it's a, just a we- Both of those teams are just so unpredictable the first two or three weeks of the season. And I, I mean, I guess to some extent it makes it fun. If you're a fan of theirs, you probably wish they'd be a lot more consistent. But um, that's just that's the way that rivalry goes. Yeah, and Iowa State won't play another ranked team until Texas. I mean, unless something weird were to happen with K State and put it on Stanford. Um, and then if you look at Iowa, well, they're going to have Penn State in there. And I think at the very least, Penn State's got a lot of guys defensively that can yeah. challenge you. Um, but as I said in the open, I don't know that I, I love the quarterback situation there. Before we let you go, you've got a book out. I'm so proud of my guy Brad. Dynasty by the numbers. Why Alabama now owns the greatest decade plus run in college football history. My thought would be that you, your family got sick of you and they said, go downstairs. And then after the weekend, you came upstairs and you were like, I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this obviously, you know, doing all the stuff that I was doing at ESPN, I was very dialed into the numbers. And as Alabama started to, you know, extend this run of dominance, um, there were so many things that would come up where it's like, man, nobody's ever done this before, or, you know, very few teams have ever done it. And now Saban's done it twice or maybe three times. And you start looking at it and it's like, okay, there, there's a bunch there. And when I set out to write it, the idea was that I I just want to show not that Alabama has been the best team in college football over the last 12 or 13 years, because even an Auburn fan would admit that. Right. But I want to show how much better they've been than everyone else in the sport. I mean, six national titles in 12 years. I mean, that number itself should tell you, but I knew there would be a lot more numbers that would tell that story just as well, if not better. And that's what it does. But in the process of putting all of it together, 
it became evident to me. And I, and I spent a lot of time working on the college football 150th anniversary a couple of years ago for ESPN. I know the history of the sport. It became evident to me that if you look at stretches of a decade or more, nobody has ever been able to sustain this level for that long. I mean, you're now at 12 years, 13 years, if you want to start at 2008 when they first got to number one under Saban. I mean, you really would have to go back to the Yale teams in the late 1800s to find someone that was able to keep this up for as long as they did. And I'm just talking about the, the record, the winning percentage and you know, being rewarded national championships. I mean, I even hate to call it that in the late 1800s. But okay, they also would play, they played Rutgers and Princeton and go 2-0 and to be a national championship well, right. and too. So, and so look, the, the honest, first of all, the other things that Alabama has done, Yale couldn't do in the late 1800s because there was no NFL. You couldn't have these great NFL draft numbers. There were no polls then. You couldn't have all these weeks ranked number one. I don't even know that there are stats that survived. The rules of the game were different. The scoring system was different. All this stuff. And on top of it, and I, I know I'm asking the wrong guy when I say this, but are we to believe that the biggest, baddest dudes in the United States all lived in New England? Because the sport <laughs> at, that, at that time was dominated by the Ivy League, and they weren't bringing kids in from California like they do now. I mean, a lot of them were Northeast kids. And the reality is they were the only ones playing football back then. You know, a lot of the teams in, in other parts of the country had just started in the, in the you know, 1890s. Um, and, and so you can't compare today's Alabama to those teams. And the, the best comparison you're going to get is to the Bud Wilkinson, Oklahoma teams in the late 40s into the 50s. And if you go back and you look at their schedules, I mean, they were obviously really good teams. They didn't play that many ranked teams along the way. And it's just... To me, there's just no question after putting all this stuff together that what Saban has accomplished not only has defied the odds in a sport where everything has, has been set up to create parity, but it's done so at a level that no other program in the history of the sport has ever been able to sustain for that long. Give me your best number then. Oh, I kind of struggle with this one, but because um, uh, there, there's so many, there are a few of them in there that I had to double check, triple check because I'm thinking there's no way. All right. You'll you'll appreciate this one, even though the on the field impact isn't, you know, is it's not great because we're talking about something that's voted on. But consensus all Americans, okay? A consensus all American is someone who's voted to a majority of the most prestigious all America teams that year. And they've got this going back all the way, I think, into the eighteen hundreds or something. You can find it in the NCAA record book if you want to look at it. Um, Alabama last season was the first team since Yale in 1909 to have six consensus All-Americans in one season, okay? If you, if you cut it off with that 1909 Yale team and just go 1910 to present, there have been five teams in the last 111 seasons of college football that have had five or more consensus All-Americans in a season. Three of the five are Nick Saban Alabama teams. The, so you got Nick Saban with three. The other 1,700-plus coaches in major college football over 110 years have combined to do it twice. Twice. And, and there, there's so many other things, Ryan. Like, you go through and you look at, at other numbers, and, like, you're not surprised that Alabama's number one in the category. You're not surprised that Ohio State or LSU is number two in the category. 
What's shocking is that Alabama's number is three times greater than the number of the number two team on the list. And there, there, there are several things like that in the book. And so uh, there's just a bunch of it that just wowed me as I put it together. It's Brad Edwards, the book Dynasty by the Numbers. And I know Michael Bonnet, I saw him this weekend. He said he wanted to sign a copy of this. So we'll set it up. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, don't know. I don't know if he's joking about that or not, because I, I, I know what the LSU people feel about Saban and what he's accomplished there. But if Michael really wants one, I'm happy to sign one and give it to him. And he can give it to – I'll sign five of them. He can give them to his LSU friends. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's been amazing. I guess I should mention where people can get the book. Because yes. Most people hear a book and they're thinking Amazon. It's not on Amazon. You can only get it online on my website, which is BamaDynastyBook.com. And uh, if you happen to be an Alabama fan listening, um, the the on-campus bookstore, the soup store, carries it along with the Bryant Museum. But those are the only two brick-and-mortar places you can get it are both on campus. So BamaDynastyBook.com if you want to check that out. And we'll do a link to that uh, as I post the podcast, all right? So we'll put awesome. it, we'll put it um, we'll, we'll reply to the podcast link there and we'll have it out there for you. Brad, it's great to catch up, man. We need to do it more often and enjoy the all right. season. Thanks, man. Great to talk to you again. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip from free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more. Book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. I feel like we need to do like a bigger check-in on everybody, how everybody's doing. Um, but I want to be, do the QB stock game on Wednesday. I know Sarudi knows it. Kyle, don't be worried. It'll be very easy. But we're bringing that sucker back. And then I think we should do the take stock on the takes. I think we need to do those. And we'll do them after week one of the NFL season, Sarudi. What do you think? Like uh, only NFL? Or are you talking like everything from when we did it until summer? We got through summer. Because I feel like we've had a couple of weeks, even months of, of some stuff that we might need to uh, get some stock, some, some IPOs or whatever, whatever it's called. Get those out there. Yeah, the Florio should... Like if Cam Newton ended up with the Buccaneers as the ultimate middle finger to Brady, that one, they wouldn't even let you short it. They would just be like, sorry, like you can't. Like we can't even assign a dollar value to that because there'd be no one that would ever buy that. It would, it's not even a penny stock. So I, <laughs> we didn't really come up with a great pricing model for it. We had a few people jump in. I just want to make it simple because this is fake. Whereas QB stock game, it's not fake. That's real. But there's usually always when I put together the stock prices for the quarterbacks, um, maybe we'll do it Friday. I don't know. I got to make sure I give myself enough time to go through it and do it for all the eligible QBs. But there was usually when I would do it each year, there was always like a number that would jump out. Basically, what I would do is I would look at your stats. There was a very simple formula. It, it's I love when people have these things. I'll hear. Eh, I'm not going to name any names, but there'll be some people to be like, oh, well, based on my preparation, you know, I was able to figure this out. And 
It's like, eh, didn't you just like divide a yard differential? Like, well, I don't think it was that big of a deal. Easy, Matt Damon. Um, but we just took QBR and we divided it. And then I added in a win loss, you know, differential that was pretty simple. And you, the prices actually played out pretty well, but there's usually always like one or two QBs. You're like, okay, that price is way too low. Like I automatically am going to make money because whatever he was that previous year, that's not what's going to happen this year, but whatever, it's fun if you can play along with it, but it's different than the takes, but you're right. Like let's put the takes in a file, Saruti, and then. You know, I'm just going to figure out something. We'll just it, look. That doesn't have to be a real dollar amount thing. We can just look at it weeks later and say, "Hey, that was a good buy. That was a bad one, or whatever." But I don't want to make it as simple as just buy or sell because that's been done a million different times. Although it's not entirely different, but we're just going to be making fun of some of the takes out there. All right, are we all on the same page with that? Yeah, I think you know we got revamp first take too, so we might have some new stuff throughout the season that we, we do can, have. Uh, dive into. We do have revamp first. I can't wait until the NBA season has a headline. We get Tebow on for an hour <laughs> on a Friday. <laughs> and I like Tebow. I do. But uh, Tebow breaking be, down Luka Dodges' weight. Yeah, that'll be that'll be the end of my opinions on that one. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, we got to do a North Water thing. And then I know a lot of you guys want to go abroad again. But the last couple F1 series, like not a ton of suspense from it. I mean, they had two laps. I mean, you want to talk about a UCLA type tweet, check out Williams team where they took a podium with two laps. It was raining. They ran two laps and it was over and they had the entire Williams team dumping champagne on each other on an Instagram post. Now, if you know anything about F1, clearly you do. If you listen to this podcast, Williams has not had a great run of it the last few years, but um, I mean, hell, at least UCLA won the game. Um, Is that like, would that be like the... 12th man at an NBA bench just going after it and like lifting the trophy after an NBA championship. Like what's the equivalent of that? Cause he still won. So you should celebrate. Right. But like, you know, was it actually a real win? Like how much he did not win tribute? He didn't, it was, it was a podium. So. Oh, still. All right. So he's still, but it's still an accomplishment that he would never otherwise have. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be. It kind of feels a little bit like what was it Phoenix who went eight and zero in the bubble, mm. you know. But I don't want to hear like, oh, hey, that set the template for everything else. Getting Chris Paul set the template for everything else. So um, that that's just a play the result thing. Like if a team loses in the first round and they come back and you know go deeper in the playoffs next year, you'd be like, you know, them getting swept three zero last year was was really you know we we play the results on that stuff a lot. But the F one, it's it's hard to explain how weird that would be. They didn't really even run the race, but they did. And so we weren't going to do uh, a big deal on that. But I guess that kid, Russell's going to end up in Mercedes anyway. So that's a okay, good There so, you go. Yeah. Uh, but that was going to happen anyway. We'll, we'll have Clark to, he's better at it than we are, clearly. Uh, no one would say otherwise. All right, life advice. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Okay, investment ideas. Oh, this will go over well. 185 centimeters, 81 kilograms. All right, cool. Um, expat living in Japan, married a local, three boys, 10, five, and one. No fear of anyone I know hearing this. Oh, I thought he was just saying straight up. I don't fear anyone. <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> no fear of anyone I know hearing this as I've been 19 years and none of, oh, I've been here 19 years and none of my friends speak English. Quick, Kyle, if you could speak any foreign language, what would it be and go? Farsi. <laughs> okay. Didn't expect that. Kind of makes sense. Why Farsi? You said quick. I don't know. 
It just it was it was I actually was going to go with like, uh, I don't know, Mandarin or Japanese or something. But you said quick and you kind of already were on the Japan corner with this email. So I said Farsi. Do you know anyone that speaks that? Do you think you'd be able to use it? Yeah, a couple of Arab friends and their parents. I feel like they're probably talking about me when I'm like the white guy hanging around the house, but I never know. So I would like to speak Farsi. That is a, a Persian language. Um, modern day Iran, Afghanistan. You could be an international liaison. Try to help us through some of this stuff, Kyle. Yeah, I like I like it on on this this part of the world over here. He just wants to use the eavesdrop on people. Yeah. That's yeah. it. It's on brand. Is it offensive to say when I see Taliban videos that I'm like, individually, I think I could take a couple? <laughs> I don't think that's offensive. No, I mean, you can size anybody up from any walk of life. Yeah. I understand their challenges are a little different. They're probably fighting with a different uh, level of inspiration. But when I watch that, I'll admit, when I, I saw the Taliban overtake I mean, it's an awful story, but when I saw him overtake that gym in somebody's house and watch them work out, I was like, I could probably get two of them before, before I'd be overwhelmed. Um, well, it was just a thought. All right, back to the email. Anyway, uh, the point of the matter is my grandmother died, left me $100,000 U.S. Currently, we're renting and my wife wants to buy a house. The problem is, despite the fact that we live in one of the cheaper preferences in Japan, she wants to live in the most expensive part of our city. We're talking four hundred k for a three-bedroom place. Uh, she's a stay-at-home mom. I'm a foreigner. I can't get a loan from the bank until I get permanent residency. I've applied for it, though, and should get it, but the process will be about another nine months. During that time, the hundred k is just sitting in my U.S. checking account. I'd like to make a little off it before it disappears. You know, maybe... Uh, less than the amount we have to borrow. Any advice for a nine-month investment? Uh, my first thing would be don't email me about this, but I can give you a little bit of common sense here on a few things. Um, if I had a dollar for every time, it's like, hey, I want to do this, but my wife wants this house. I mean, it's just overwhelming. I think we all have to admit some of us have, uh, I don't know if there's a nesting instinct there let's try not to uh, turn this into, oh, a guy's saying this, but there's just, it's endless. It's endless how many times the the guy will say, I'm not saying there aren't men that also want to spend money on houses when the female's a little more prudent about the money, but it seems to be, whatever that ratio it is, it seems to be higher on the female side where the guy will be like, hey, this is our current situation, but my wife wants this. So here's the deal. From what I've learned is whatever it is that your wife wants is probably what you're going to end up doing. Now, here's the scary part. When you start talking in like practical numbers of, Hey, I'd like to borrow less. So say you're taking a $300,000 loan. The likelihood that you're going to make like another 50 grand here in nine months while exposing that money, the kind of risk that would take on that kind of return is why you shouldn't do any of this stuff. I mean, take it out of your checking account and talk to somebody who really understands some of these short term, but the priority here is safe investments where, you know, you're not even going to be making on that math 10% like in a nine month deal. And again, I don't know all the products. This isn't something that I would, um, I don't, I, I never profess to understand this world enough, but I do know what it's like to have your money exposed when you're thinking about a big investment. When the stock market went to shit during the beginning of COVID, I, like a lot of other people were like, all right, well, some of these things are just ridiculously priced and started buying up stuff. But I also knew that I was doing a real estate deal. So Every time you're looking at it, you're going like, oh, look what it did today. Oh, it's recovering. I'm so smart. I'm so smart. And then you're like, holy shit, if we have another downturn, which is entirely possible, yet it's only doubled since then, 
Uh, but it was possible. We don't know. None of us know. I mean, it's, it's like the gambler who tells you he never loses. Never talk to him again, right? Um, my point would be this house is likely the most important purchase you've ever made in your life. You have a wife and three kids that are depending on you here. So the number one priority is not thinking, hey, how do I turn 100K into 150 so that I'm borrowing less? It should be, how can I make anything off this 100,000, which you're not going to make in a checking account? How can I make anything here where I'm not exposing the money to, I have to go to my wife and say, hey, I lost half of it, all right? Because then you're screwed, especially when you're talking about having enough in the bank, not only is the down payment, but the carry where most banks, and I don't understand how it works over there, but I imagine it's pretty similar, where they're going to want to know how long you can carry a payment without work if things went bad, which is a year, year and a half, something like that, depending on, on the purchase price of the house. Maybe it wouldn't be as bad for a purchase price um, around 400000 So I get your point, and it's awesome that you're like, hey, how can I do this? But having money in a market and going to bed and then waking up and having that money not there is a really shitty feeling. And it's going to be even worse if that money is already spent on something this important. So the only advice I can give you isn't products or here's this investment. This is not, what is it, Dave Holmes? This is not the Dave Holmes show. But I know as I was sitting there having money that was attached to other stuff that was really volatile during COVID, where I'm like, oh, I have this much money for a down payment on something new. I could have fucked that up in a huge way. The only difference is I wasn't going to have anybody yell at me. So um, that was that. And then I remember being like, hey, dude, what are you doing? Like, don't make this mistake. Like, how are you going to feel if all this paperwork and the realtors and you're putting in an offer on something and then you're like, oh, hey, sorry, man, Tesla got wiped out. Can't buy a house now. So that's the only advice that I would have. Kyle? I actually got more of a question than okay. any advice to give. I don't Maybe, even know say, if I can answer it. You know, I mean, I'm, say, I'm very no, remedial. I think you can. I think you can. I think you can. So say I have a similar grandma situation. And let's say. Are you going to kill your grandmother? Let's say she pulled me aside and said, fuck these people. Like, you're going to run all this shit when it's over. Let's say that happened. Yeah. And so. Also, let's say she has like a 150-year-old house that I would never move into in a million years. But Your let's tone just is say, scaring. This tone is very specific, and it's scaring me. I just want that. Uh, it scared me, too. No, no. I actually asked her. I was like, hey, are you like planning something here? She's like, no, no, no. I just wanted to get this stuff out of the way. You know, I don't see you that often, X, Y, Z. So I guess what I'm saying is, let's say you have 100000 US, like this guy says. Do you really put, and you want a house that's like $350,000 or something, do you literally put every single dollar of that $100,000 down? Because that's like what no makes way. sense. I would no way. I mean, so, so, look, this I is a, go ahead. This is a philosophical thing. Uh, the, the way money is right now, and everybody is like, "Oh, the rates can't go any lower," and then they just keep going lower and lower and lower. Um, I would rather have cash to either do other things or no. Like some people are different. Some people hate. Some people hate the idea of a car payment. Um, when I did or didn't have money. I didn't, I didn't care. I would rather have the stockpile and have that in my account. And then if it meant a little bit more over time, fine. But some people hate the payment. Some people hate the idea that the, but when interest is the way it is right now, I would rather have that cushion than giving them every dollar that they want. But you know, look, the first house I ever bought, I go through the mortgage process, which unfortunately just happens a lot. Um, and it's not always great. You think you're at the finish line. You never are. And then it's like, hey, you know what? Instead of 20% down, we'd love like 25% down. 
And, you know, depending on where you are in your life, like 20 and 25% can be a Big huge, difference. huge deal. It, it can. I mean, even, you know, it wasn't a huge purchase for me, uh, meaning total price point, but it was a huge purchase for me because that's what it was at that time. And so, I, I've talked to other people that do it differently. You know, some people just straight up pay cash. If you can do that, great, go ahead and do it. I think that the way money is and how cheap it is, unless you're so flush with cash, but so, again, some people just hate the idea of a bigger payment. They're like, I'd rather the payment lower. I'm borrowing less. So over time, I'm paying less. But I look at it as whatever house I've lived in, I'm not living in it for 30 years. This isn't my retirement home. I'm not paying it off. And then that's my retirement. I'm giving it to my kid. You know what I mean? Like, I just, whenever you're looking at mortgage products, as much as you could say, well, hey, how much principal am I paying down? What is my payment? What is my interest? What's the, the full 30-year calculator on this? You know, you look at those, and you're like, oh, no wonder banks do so well. And again, for other people that are in it, they're like, this isn't that interesting. But the first time you do it, you're like, wait a minute. Oh, okay. That's why That's why the economy works the way it does. I just think when when the interest, or excuse me, the, yeah, the interest rate is, is what it is, uh, I would I would try to find a way to put down the minimum down payment. I'm mean, not talking like 5% down, like they used to do way. Like that's why the mortgage crisis thing was so fucked is you not only were lending to people that couldn't afford and have given you no uh, financial track record that they could pull off what they were doing, but then you would also have the interest rate go to an insane number and they were letting people do this with like 5% down, I don't know, zero down in some cases. And I mean, you know, you say it retroactively, like, oh no shit, that didn't work. But yeah, I mean, long answer here, Kyle, sorry. Uh, I personally feel that way. Others disagree. So. Yeah, because I know somebody like my dad would be like, oh, just set yourself up and and put as much down as you can because that makes sense. But like in my head and other people I've asked were like, no, don't do that. I'm somewhere in the middle. So who knows? Okay, it's depends. all hypothetical. Like, if you're on a budget, yeah. you know, Definitely but, on a budget. Okay, but so say, <laughs> like I'll just, I'll just run through the numbers. I bought a condo 10 years ago in Connecticut for $417,000, all right? And I put... 25% down because they came back at the very last minute. They're like, oh, let's get 25% into this guy. All right. So I put down the 25%. At that point, it's kind of like, you know, close to my life savings plus whatever I had left over for the carry that I was talking about. Because they're not going to let you write a check for $125,000 and have $40 in your bank account and then give you a house. All right. Like you still have to have cash to cover the payment the rest of the way. So depending, I refinanced it, I think once, but the payment and this is like with property taxes and everything else in there off of that down payment and everything else was, I think, $2,100. All right. It was around there. So forgive me if the math is a little off. It was a long time ago. So it was about 2100 I think, on the initial part, maybe twenty two, something like that. If I had done 50% down and then the payment was like 1600 or 1300 you know, again, I'm just doing this sort of off the top of my head and I know it's wrong, but just to ballpark it, at that point, what the, what the job was... To then go, all right, you're going to get 200000 down, which I didn't even have. Now, oh, wow, but this means every, every month I'm saving another $600. The $600, based on what I was making then at that point, wasn't going to change that much of what my routine was. And that's just what you have to figure out. Now, at that point, I was lucky that the $600 was going to make or break me every single month. Like It definitely would have at other times in my life. But that's where I go... Why would I want to give you another eighty thousand upfront to save six hundred each month? Not only yes. in cash for each month, but then the long term part of it, which is an important point to part. Of. But I knew I wasn't going to live in the house in Connecticut. Beyond I, hell, I had it a lot longer than I ever thought I could because I couldn't sell it forever because Connecticut screwed up the property tax so much. So, you know, there you go. I think mean, that actually helped. 
Well, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I know with any of this stuff, it's just there's going to be some people that are like, yeah, you nailed it. And they're going to be like, no, this is what, you know, whatever. I, I, the beginning of the email is find somebody else better than your sports talk show host to give you a stable nine month investment. But I'm telling you, if you think like you're going to get some sort of 25% return on something in nine months, you might. But what are you going to do? Go buy stocks right now and day trade for a little while. And then you're going to tell your family, hey, guess what? Hey, guess what, guys? All right, here we go. Um, we again, guys are guys are still chiming in about the pull up thing. It's never ending. Uh, we had somebody chime in and say flat bench press is to decline as Kipling pull up uh, is to strict pull up. He reversed those, so he's saying decline is the same as Kipling. I don't know one person who has ever said, "Hey, here are my decline numbers," ignoring their flat. If you do that, don't go outside. Ooh, keep it moving. All right, this is a good one. It's titled "Struggling Host Slash Stoner." Twenty seven. Melbourne, huge in Australia, New Zealand. I want to get your thoughts. 187.62, Stephen Adams level screen setter. Had to wrap up a game of four and four pickup because a guy ate it on one of my screens and had to go home. He was down for like five minutes. I heard a crunch. Swear to God, I was stationary the whole time. Maybe take it a little easy on some of your pickup hoop screens if that's true. Is there something to brag about? I don't don't know. Nah, I played with this guy who was like an old, old school player. And he used to just level us on these fucking screens. And it was bad because I was in high school and he was like a, a, a grown up and a, and a teacher. And I remember he did it to me a couple times and I was like, hey, cut the shit. Like, what are we doing here? And then when anybody would do that, I, I would make sure the first time they went to set a screen on me, I didn't care about defending the player. I would run into them as hard as I fucking could to just be. And again, back then, I probably didn't even feel it, but something I carried over. If somebody sets screens like this on you in a pickup game, and you know what's going to happen. Don't even give up the basket. Just be a fullback. Put your sho- <laughs> put your shoulder right into his <laughs> chest cavity. And I'm telling you, they're not going to set the screen as hard on you after that. Don't say anything either. Just do it. Know what you're doing. And then it was like when Chauncey Billups drove on this guy that was trying to like pick him up three quarter court in an ESPN pickup game. <laughs> and Chauncey was like, "Yeah, I'll run with you guys for a little bit." And the guy like decided he was going to take the belt from Chauncey Billups. This guy in video. And the thing you don't realize, like how physical the NBA game is to get any sort of space, like Chauncey put his shoulder right into this kid and the kid made a noise and Chauncey obviously scored on him immediately. And that was what's great. It's like Chauncey wasn't dribbling to get past you or away from you. He's like, oh, I'm going to dribble through you and I'm going to teach you a little lesson here. And the kid uh, did not pick up Chauncey three-quarter court the rest of that game. Were you there for that one, Saruti? No, but I have a question for you. Who is worse in a pickup game? Guy who sets hard legal but hard screens, or the guy who's constantly trying to draw charges. If you draw a charge in a pickup game, I'm play- like, I'll just <laughs> you're out. <I'll- laughs> We're good. I don't. I've I've yelled. I mean, it doesn't happen that often. It really doesn't. I mean, I don't. I still don't. And I'm not like I've been playing a ton over the last couple of years, but in all the years I did it, but whenever anybody did it, I most people knew. Like I've even said, I'm like you're calling fucking charges. Like how about don't. Like, what do you, you know, and sometimes you do something in the post, it gets a little physical and then the kid will go charge. And I just be like, no. And then you just walk to the other end of the court. If people call on charges in your pickup games, you just need to everybody not respect the call and walk to the other end. All right. So back to our guy who's a stoner setting tough screens here. Checking in my transition away from animation. Okay. That's his full-time work, animating internal trading bids. All right. We'll uh, maybe not put all of this in there. He's not enjoying it. He's moving more into hosting and presenting. The only problem is sometimes I smoke too much weed. 
I do want to host pot adjacent shows like shows about skateboarding, tattooing and video games. And maybe later in the future shows like the amazing race. I have a full sleeve geeky tattoo and silver hair. Uh, so the aesthetic matches. Suri, you love this guy. How close were you to getting silver hair? Uh, I've actually not silver, but I've thought about doing like the cool soccer player <laughs> yeah. look where you bleach it and you kind of let it grow in. You got like the dark undertones and then you got the bleach top hair. I've thought about it several times, but haven't pulled the trigger yet. Uh, I'd say, and then sleep. I yes. I've had, I've wanted to sleep forever. I just don't know what to get. So I, this guy is living my dream. I don't, I don't really smoke as much as he does. Though, so it's all good. Yeah. I never had, I never thought that about you. Actually, this is, this is, as you said, not as much as this guy at all. I'm, I'm actually a little surprised. I, we've never talked about it, but we'll leave you know, I don't know if we're at the point where everybody's we'll talking Leave it about mystery. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Mystery Steve. I also do a bit of stand-up on the side. Um, okay. The only problems I'm noticing, I'm getting, I'm getting heavier because I get high. I get too high and eat too much chocolate. And I think it makes me a bit slower. <laughs> However, I'm a bit of a differenti- uh, differentiator from other people in a positive way. I've been getting opportunities in hosting, presenting in these areas, partly because of this, I feel uh, it adds an edge. Weed is still uh, legal here. So wait, so he thinks he's edgy weed guy and he's getting jobs because of it? Just wanted to know what you would do if you were me. Should I ease up or should I see where it takes me? As it seems both positive and negative, there's also a place in the Australian media landscape for the Seth Rogen of Australia, and I could fit it. Um, <laughs> cheers. He said, when we're down under, we all rip a cone together, Kyle. Love to. That's cigarettes, How do you feel about right? That? No, I'm imagining. No, no cones. Uh, yeah, that's a joint. Cone. Yeah, I'll do yeah. that too. All right. Old guy alert happening. Uh, all right. Look, I'm not anti-weed. I just never never was that into it um, at all. I lived with a bunch of guys who could not function unless they had it. Despite the social acceptance of it, I still think there's probably some dudes where it's like, hey, it's legal. It's like, there's a lot of shit that's legal that shouldn't run your life. Um, and in this case, you know, I mean, look, whether it's you listening right now and you know, or other guys, like the day can't start until they get high. And then they would say, oh, I have anxiety. <laughs> All right, so you're just going to be stoned the rest of your life. So if you think it's making you get fat and eat too much food, then I think you're on the right path, though, for the Seth Rogen part of it. Uh, I don't, I I don't know the Australian comedy market, believe it or not. I still feel like in 2021, Kyle, you can help me with this. Do you think like, Hey, that guy's pretty good. Do you know, do you know, he takes weed? Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Let's give him a show. Sign him up. (laughs) He does alcohol too. So, um, I, I would just say this to anybody, like, if you think it's interfering, which I don't know, this guy's, this struggle seems to be that he thinks being a stoner is opening up avenues, which I think has to be at a bit of an exaggeration. Um, are you still funny? If you're doing stand-up, are you funnier with it or without it? Is the reason you can get out there because of it? Like, you know, that's why so many of these rock bands, it takes 20 years and they have to sober up because they felt like they had to be drunk on stage the whole time. And it's also, you know, I think a lot of these famous people that have, drug and alcohol problems a lot of it has to do with the schedule like they don't have to be up at eight or nine most of the time like the rest of us so it's like hey it's tuesday i'm just gonna go out um but you're still young you're thinking about it i mean i don't want to make it as simple as maybe you don't have to smoke all the time but you're just going to get to a point where you either realize it is the priority of your day which it probably shouldn't be 
or you're going to think, hey, recreationally, like it, it helps me. And, and maybe that's not the biggest deal. You know, maybe that part's not the biggest deal. I, I just think there's there really shouldn't be anything other than your kids that takes over your life. That's a great call. Kyle, I would I would say uh, a couple things. I surprisingly have a couple thoughts on this. One, <laughs> um, if you're like wake it, if you're like wake and baking, I found that like that's just whack. Um, and, and like you don't even know that it's whack until you stop doing it. So maybe like don't do that. The other thing, if you're worried about getting heavy, I was always wondering, I even just Googled this a, a minute ago because I didn't want to sound like an idiot. Um, when you smoke weed, I think it it changes your metabolic rate. That's metabolisms, right? Yep. So what if you tried to smoke weed and not eat chocolate? That's like a cheat code, isn't it? Like you're raising your metabolism, but you're not putting any shit in there. And then, you know, you're like two birds, one stone. You're getting high and you're also made, yeah, okay. doing but, the opposite of getting fat. I'm surprised you said that because that's like a huge like, oh, hey, just be high and don't eat chocolate. That's like telling somebody who smokes, OK, I want to quit. But when you have six or seven beers, don't smoke cigarettes. You know, like is it though? Is it the same, though? No, I'm not saying cigarettes are the same as chocolate or chocolates as dangerous as cigarettes. But what I'm saying is that tell me cigarettes is better than chocolate right now, because I want to feel that <laughs> what just I'm say it for me. No, but what I'm saying <laughs> is that you're the reason. You know, any of this stuff is because it, you know, it, it either calms you or it makes you feel a way that you like to feel. But at the same time, too, it also impacts the decisions. So to just say, hey, be really high, but now don't like chocolate. That's a big ask. It's also well, habitual, if right? You're, well, if you're getting heavier and you'd rather not work out because there's like just more fun stuff to do. Isn't that sort of like at least you don't have to run. Just don't eat chocolate. Maybe you're mad tap. Maybe drink a little water with. Uh, lemon juice in it. I think that's a metabolism thing. Maybe you just start doing like all the metabolism stuff and not have to do the workout stuff. And then maybe you won't be as heavy. What What happened to my Kyle? You're telling me get really high and then do the cayenne lemon water, honey, fasting <sighs> drink. Well, it's not fasting. I'm not saying don't eat at all. I'm just saying like, don't like, I don't know, get the crunch bar or whatever. Good calories fine. only. Yeah. I'm I just saying know. you could do it as this like is... instead of working out. This is like for lazy people. Like I'm one of those people. Here's here's my my summary on this. Stuart, do you have anything to add to this? No, I'm just, I'm just equally surprised as Kyle. Uh, I I think it's easy to say, hey, don't eat chocolate when you're high. But when you're high, you're going to eat chocolate. So I don't think that this is, you're in a loop here that's never going to be solved. Right. It's like people that get hammered want Chinese food like oh okay well now just keep getting hammered it's cool but just do not want chinese food I'm yeah like, okay, it's like prob getting... problem solved yeah when i'm hammered i'll just i'll just rationalize it i'll think perfectly and i'll make good decisions that'll happen it's like getting drunk in college and not ordering dominoes like, wow, that's just every time every saturday friday night whatever the night was you get dominoes when you're drunk because that's what you do and yeah it's not great for you but it's just a habit getting hammered is a lot of work though this definitely has to be food involved that's all i'm saying it's different that's different yeah that's a joint that's different. I, I would ask anyone that's that's doing this because the weed push of the last few years, I think, has, has made people think like, all right, cool, it's legal, like none of it matters. But like you can't just you can't just drink and go to work. <laughs> okay. And that's been that's been legal for a long time too. Um, it's just a lot harder to hide. I I would ask anybody this that's like even asking themselves this question as it relates to the emailer. If you think it is kind of running your day then, you know, maybe you got to wean yourself off it a little bit. If you think if it's getting in the way of your work, 
then that's a problem. If you don't think it's getting in the way of your work, I'm sure there's a lot of guys who are stoned all the time listening to us. We're like, hey, I do this. I, I work with computers. I'm at home all the time. I'm more efficient. It doesn't matter. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm not telling you you're wrong. But it's up to every person to decide if you're even asking these questions. It's like that episode of Mad Men where Don Draper says, he goes, the minute you have to ask if you have a drinking problem, you have a drinking problem, right? And so I think if this is something where you are like going, hey, I didn't do this. I didn't come through with this. I sort of blew this off on and on and on. And you're 27, then, you know, whatever. But these are, these are, you kind of have to go through some shit. But I don't even know that that's what this guy is saying. I, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's, it's dire. I think he's just sort of in the middle here. But if he wants to be Seth Rogen, he just needs to get higher, eat more chocolate, right? I think Seth Rogen's funny, not because he smokes weed. And if you think that's why it's funny, then you're probably wrong Whoa. to this guy. That struck a nerve right there. <laughs> No, I mean, I listen to like a lot of comedians podcasts and and not a lot of them, but there's a couple that I listen to and they're just like, um, you know, like, yeah, I had a Coke problem, but I wouldn't go on stage doing Coke because like comedy was important to me. And like, you know, it, it threw me off. But like you should like if you're funny, it sounds like you're funny. Like you should focus on being funny without um, added things in there. So if like if, if you're you are but funny, sometimes you it helps. It, but sometimes, sometimes it helps. It helps though, right? But if you're so, having an existential question about whether or not it's it's going to help me do better, it's probably not. You should focus on being better, like regularly. The other thing Don Draper could have asked himself is like, hey, if you're drinking brown water at 9 a.m. at work, that might be more of an issue. Yeah, he never asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw the episode where Don Draper goes they they win the Clio. remember they get hammered because they don't think they have to meet the people from life cereal then the people from life cereal cereal show up so they get hammered at the commercial awards advertisement awards then they have to go back to the office he pitches the life cereal thing shit face that was the other kid's tagline cure for the common everything and then he goes out again with roger and joan he goes home with the brunette and then he wakes up to bets calling him saying you're two hours late you haven't picked up the kids. And he's like, whatever, it's Saturday. And she's like, it's Sunday. And he rolls over and it's the waitress from a diner. He missed a day and went to bed on a Friday and woke up on a Sunday with a different person than he went to bed with on Friday and missed an entire day. That is a lot. That's hopefully we don't have any emailers uh, suggesting that timeline. All right, that'll do it. We'll be back on we got a lot of stuff going on uh, Wednesday and Friday. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, please subscribe, rate, and review Ryan Russell, the podcast, Ringer, and Spotify. Thanks to Kyle and Steve, as always. Peace.